Okay, let's go into it. All right. Good evening. You're listening to Weird Seasons of the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Robert Mitchum on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Good evening and welcome to, oh geez, we're somewhere in the middle of season 10, I have no idea, of Weird Seasons Inside the Goldmine. If you're a sense of guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment, drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and virago of vituperativeness, as we have dubbed him, uh, as we dis- <laughs> discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. Starring in at least 12 films that are or have been associated with the film noir genre, a retroactive designation courtesy of Francis Cajeda's Cinemas crowd, covering American B-pictures with a cynical, compromised heroes, vicious femme fatales, and a Jalo-esque immersion in a dark underworld where all is not as it seems and everyone is guilty and menacing. Robert Mitchum brought a less comical, far less telegraphed Dean Martin style insouciance to his work. Tall and manly enough to stand on his own in a fight, yet sleepy-eyed and laid back enough to be led along by the nose to his doom, by the many vamps and traps he'd encountered, much of his on-screen persona appears to have been presaged by his own life. The son of a working-class dock worker and railroad man, he wound up living under a resented military stepfather, to the point where he wound up riding the rails and bumming his way around the country in his early teens, supposedly winding up and escaping Sullivan's travel style on a southern jailhouse chain gang for his efforts. An early advocate of the wacky weed, he wound up in prison for a second time over pop possession right in the middle of his noir career, threw a studio manager into a lake, literally, and more in a career which times found him working alongside two of the gentlemen preferred blonde girls, Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell, and eventually starring in too much overhyped films late in the genre, Night of the Hunter and Cape Fear. He then returned to prominence over a decade later with three notable films in the 70s neo-noir revival, before closing out on then-much-hyped television miniseries, The Winds of War, and that stupid Bill Murray vehicle, Scrooge. Like, what a way to go. <laughs> Join us tonight as we speak of another cinematic epitome of tough guy cool, the one and only Robert Mitchum, right here on Weird Scenes. So, good evening. Uh, inside said, I am Doc Savage, with his Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone. I, I, I noticed, not to cut you off, I noticed that this is the, the first time we're actually recording one of these since April. 2021. So uh, we're in August. Although one was edited and released to the world like a baby. Yeah, it's been a while since we actually got together to do one day. So I hope it's a fun one. Yeah, I mean, I know I don't even remember when these things got recorded and done. I know we had done a Donald Pleasance one and did Humphrey Bogart, and we had done a, of all people, Burt Reynolds one. But uh, that's been for a bit. Yeah, Skype told me, because when I signed on, this is how we record these things, folks, but on the way to getting edited, which is a different process, of course, to make it more pleasurable for you. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Skype told me, because like, the last time you've been on, so since I haven't signed on to Skype since April, I got Gigi and Ellen and all these ladies that want to be my friend. Won't you be my friend? <laughs> yeah. Gigi wants to be your friend. Like, show me a picture. No picture, no friend. No. I can't. <laughs> I, I block these people. I, I, you know, I 
maybe maybe they know who I am. Remember, I I am the, as you said. So back to Robert. Richard. Russian war bride wants to be your friend. She wants to have sex with you in your neighborhood. Would you like to? Blink yes, blink no. <laughs> Well, and what she looks like. <laughs> Anybody out there who falls for those things, you deserve what you get. It's my new wife, Helga. <laughs> uh, and you know who probably she looks like? Remember that Avengers episode where where, where Steve and, and, and Emma were paired up with these two Russian agents? Yes. And all this, this, this Russian <laughs> with the brunette. She was actually kind of hot. Yeah, that was, uh, who was that? That was, uh, what's her name? She actually showed up in a couple of British TV things and was the wife of uh, another prom, either prominent actor or producer. Because I remember it became the Doctor Who thing. He She had showed up on uh, yeah, Doctor Who yeah. at one point, and the guy that plays uh, Jamie, uh, Fraser Hines, tried to hit on her and almost got in big trouble because the, the other guy was also on set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, somebody like that, you know, like... Uh, I can't remember her name though, offhand, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah. Be, be prepared. If you never listen to our show, or this is the first time, a long time, listen to our show, we take these little moments of pleasure. <laughs> no, <laughs> take we, pleasure we, we tend it. to digress, but it comes back to the thing. So tonight, there's a whole bunch of stuff he had done in the beginning that I did not see or try to see, from 1942 through 44. And it mostly seems like he's in uh, war movies and westerns. And this goes all the way up to the first one I tackled. So if you got anything earlier than this, let me know. When Strangers Married, also known as Betrayed. Future gimmick meister William Castle of House on Haunted Hill and the Tingler fame emergoed into the world of film with a few no-budget detective series like The Crime Doctor and The Whistler and a handful of oddities like this film noir that features future Planet of the Apes Dr. Zira and Deadline USA Bogey co-star Kim Hunter as this sort of abject moron who marries some guy she only went out with two or three times before discovering he may be a serial killer. Mitchum is an old boyfriend who tags along because he's suspicious of the guy and shocked she dumped him for someone she barely knew and in the same crappy profession of sales, which is supposedly the reason that she wouldn't marry Bob. Or is he the Silk Stocking Strangler? Commissioner Gordon and head of the satanic voodoo cult in the devil's hand, Neil Hamilton, sticks close to typecast here as a police lieutenant investigating the case and some seriously hammy overacting by Hunter and surprisingly at one point Mitchum himself can't ruin what's overall a reasonably entertaining waste of an hour or so and quite unlike Castle's later works. So, did you see this one? You know, I did, actually. <laughs> it's funny. We both, it looks like we both start off the same. I actually, uh, for, it's a monogram picture, so it's cheap. Yes, but as you said, you know, he was doing lots of bits, bit parts, and eh, larger than bit parts, and uh, supporting roles in like westerns and, and war films. This is pretty much a supporting role for him, even though it's a monogram picture. It's interesting that it's it's a William Castle. What I found interesting because I'm a guy who reads the credits, like mm-hmm. Dimitri Tiomkin did the music for this. So like Monogram, who is known as a tight-fisted, low-budget company. Obviously, there was some money input into this. I don't. I'm not quite sure what's going on. I did not dig deep, but um, that guy's got to be expensive. You know, just you know, composer. It's short, 67 minutes, probably 65 with the credits. But I thought the cast was interesting. I always liked Dean Jagger. Mm-hmm. Uh, no relation to Meg. And yeah. <laughs> and Kim Hunter is was interesting to watch when she was younger. Never. 
a beauty, but she had a, a bit of a sultriness going uh, going on. Bob Mitchum was still very young at this point. I, I enjoyed it for what it was. It's funny we both watch this. Yeah, it's 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 hard to be critical of what, you know these early 1940s movies uh, because it, you know it's it's a time period thing yeah. too. Yeah. But you were hot for Doctor Zero, huh? <laughs> yeah, yes, I was. Even when she was eight, I, I would have done her. <laughs> so anyway, uh, <laughs> there's a handful more movies in between, which mostly again seem like westerns. Although with a title like Girl Rush, I gotta wonder what that's about. And Jimmy Smith is his character name. Is like did he name him after the famous organist, the jazz organist? But the next one that I went to was Undercurrent in 1946. Blowsy musical director Vincente Minnelli must have been belting out, meet me in St. Louis, Louis, because he sure wasn't thinking so wonderful to be working on this piece of shit. A sappy melodrama that borrows its core from the old gothic romances. Bluebeard's exes are hidden behind those doors. There's a mad woman locked away in Jane Eyre's attic room without delivering any of the expected frisson and tense atmosphere such stories have to offer. Shaky baked old Catherine Hepburn, ha ha, perpetually delivering lines through pinched nose and a terminal case of the DTs, managed to be unlikable even in such winning fare as the Philadelphia story. How much more intolerable when placed in a sorry production like this, a weepy melodrama in all but name, based on a serialized romance from Ladies Home Companion, one of those crappy housewives supermarket rags like Women's World or Better Home and Gardens, so you know this is going to be a top-notch thrill ride. Slick and sleazy Robert Taylor, complete with pencil-thin mustachio for twirling and more bro-cream oil to slick back his hair than you can top off your car with, is a rich guy with a big family secret. Supposedly, his elusive brother is a maniac. Meanwhile, the clues mount up that hubby may be projecting, particularly when weak-willed sad sack Mitchum finally shows up one night for a chat tired stuff, even if it started an appealing female lead, and weren't so openly an old-fashioned prude-pleasing weepy in noir clothes, but combined Minnelli's awkwardness with anything less day-glow and blowsy than Ethel Merman belting out anti-mame, with Hepburn's old uptight bitty nastiness, and you got a major disaster on your hands. P.U. I saw this one, too, and, and, and I thought it was interesting. I, I, I didn't know it was a Vicente <laughs> Minnelli movie until, like, the credits again. You know, I was like, oh, the hell's he doing here? <laughs> what is he doing here? Uh, you know, I don't despise Catherine Hepburn, which apparently you do. But <laughs> uh, Robert Taylor, you know, he's. It would be in some movies. Robert Taylor's quite good. Um, Robert Mitchum, I think, is miscast in this. Uh, yeah, because he's weak. It's strange. Yeah, nice to see Edmund Gwen. Um, Jane Meadows from The Honeymooners is in this. I I watched it and then I probably forgot about it the next day. <laughs> you know, I, you know, it lasted but, that long for you, eh? <laughs> it, it was it was probably a long day, but uh, it's interesting how he's Mitchum is developing. Yeah, he's been giving a part to play. So he's an actor and he wants to be an actor. And so he's, he's fulfilling uh, his contract to play this role as given to him. But he's, he does do some quirky little things, I noticed, in this movie. And actually, actually, in, the, in When Strangers Marry, he does quirky little, which are probably Bob Mitchum things, not Bob Mitchum, the actor. He, I noticed he does these quirky little things with walks and with 
line deliveries, almost like I'm, I'm sure the guy behind the camera. And, you know, these last two pictures were done by you know, well-known filmmakers who later on in years would become really more well-known. And they're probably behind the camera going, what the fuck? Because <laughs> you know, you've seen enough, you know, especially 70s shows you're watching and, and uh, you know, all these other movies where there there are scenes or episodes where there there's uh, you know a TV show being made or a film being made and you know the characters happen to be on set and you 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 could see how the directors or the the crew is reacting to somebody just going out of character you know mm-hmm. yep. I, I'm sure there, there's just these little texts I caught next was Crossfire, a film noir that sadly has never been more applicable to modern society. Edward Dimitrik, who gave us Murder, My Sweet, Shalico, and The Human Factor, drops a grim and claustrophobic little drama involving a seemingly senseless pair of murders. Suspicions falls on a young artistic type in the military. I gather they're on shore leave, though dialogue suggests these are post-war veterans facing a nation that has no place for them. If so, why are they all in uniform? Mitchum has a smaller part as the commanding officer and friend of the suspect who helps the investigators suss out who the real killer is, and his motive is pure hatred of Jews. There's a great speech towards the end where the investigator tries to convince the killer's pal of how stupid racism is by pointing out the exact same situation and treatment of the Irish guy only a decade or two prior, and it happened to the Italians as well. Presumably every ethnic group immigrating in large numbers has run into this name bullshit and scapegoating at some point in history, and eventually the rather obvious baddie is tricked into outing himself fairly inconsequential except for the sadly too pertinent message, but grim and shadowy on multiple levels and with an all nighttime tiny room to tiny room setup, you can't help feel as trapped as the victims in the film itself. Nice stuff. So did you see that one? Yeah, I did. It is very nice. It's a nice film noir that I either didn't know about or if I did at one point in time I've forgotten about it. And, it's uh, definitely a B picture at best, but yeah. It's a B picture, but uh, it's got a great little cast too. Uh, you know, you got Robert Young I think people could Marcus Welby. I think people forget he was he was really good when you know when he when he was when he was trying mm. you know and uh, you know he, he got Mitchum we got Robert Ryan another guy you know these guys were all still young it's uh, 1947 three Roberts the <laughs> three Roberts yeah that's interesting right Glory Graham who some some see as a hotties and there's Paul Kelly good actor Sam Levine who had a good long life supporting actor. Interesting choice uh, of subject matter for this film in this time period. Yes. Antisemitism, racism. You know, uh, and, you know, well, it did come uh, right after we beat Hitler in World War II. Actually, right after Japan at this point, but yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really address that. No. But it addresses other forms. Domestic know, is what they're talking about. So. Domestic, yeah. No, it's quite good. It's quite good. Surprising, actually. I was surprised. So uh, next up is the one you wanted to go to, which is the obvious marker, one of the high points of his career. I mean, actually one of the high points in noir, which is out of the past. Uh, also known as Bill My Gallows High, I guess, in the UK. One of the greats among film noir. This one hails from moody horror director Jacques Tourneur, so oft associated with Val Luton on pictures like Cat People and I Walk With a Zombie, plus perennial favorite and barely disguised Crowley analog, Night of the Demon, who clearly knows his way around moody, atmospheric chiaroscuro. What a convoluted plot. And honestly, even trying to relate this one would just leave you scratching your head and feeling dizzy. <laughs> double cross after double cross involving a pair of private dicks hired to retrieve sleazy Kirk Douglas's girlfriend, who stole a shit ton of money and shot him on the way out. 
being a sexy redheaded film fatale of the highest order, Jane Greer, she manages to get Mitchin to fall for her and run away together instead, even after his partner finds them and winds up shot dead for his troubles. They part ways, he tries to set up a new life with another woman, until his past catches up with him and everything goes downside up. Realize that what I just summarized there barely covers the first 45 minutes of a film that runs a good hour more than that. It's dark, all its characters are doomed, the sets are lavish, but it still feels claustrophobic, with most of its doings occurring in the dead of night. Visually alone, this is a treat on the order of Orson Welles' Touch of Evil, but there are no weak links in this chain. Everyone is at the top of their game, with even Kirk Douglas making quite an impression for as little screen time as he gets. It may not be the quintessential film noir, but it's always right up there in people's top ten lists, and there's a good reason for that. I mean, if you get to see only a handful of films we talk about tonight, make this one of them, and Farewell My Lovely or Macau the others. Oh yeah, this is very good. This is very good. Uh, Douglas, uh, Jane Greer, uh, Chadley Veronica Lake, maybe, you know. Uh, she looks so good in this thing, and you know, not, I don't even think of her as like, oh yeah, one of Hollywood's hotties, but wow. <laughs> and Rhonda Fleming, too, really good, strong. She was such a strong actress. Uh, you know, I, I, I see uh, James M. Cain, the author, that said, uh, did some uh, uncredited revisions of the script. It's possible. You know, it, it feels like James M. Cain. Mm-hmm. I remember reading his stuff as an author. It's good. It's a Mitchum doing star. Wasn't he uh, Postman Always Rings Twice, too? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Yes. This, this picture is really dark. And also, it's very close, 1947, so it's very close to the to the 50s. You know, and previously billed as Bob Mitchum, Robert Mitchum, definitely now, he, he really knocks it out of the park with this picture because he, he still has this persona of maybe wounded romance guy who's willing to give it all, but he's, I'm smarter than that, but yet, you know, he falls for it, yep. you know? Typical noir, I know better, but I'm going to get sucked in anyway just for the sex or whatever else. Yeah, yeah I know a story of my life. So. <laughs> yeah, I can hear that. Uh, <laughs> trust me, I had a shitty life before I let my wife too. <laughs> Fun, but shitty. So, uh, about two or three more films go on, you know, cowboy films, whatever, and he does The Big Steel. Uh, Warner DVDs. You know, I don't know if any of you had experience with this. I know that uh, my beloved disc of Cruising gave up the ghost not too long ago. And I've seen it happen with other Warner discs that are pretty early ones, like the snap cases and things like that. But not always just the snap cases. They must have printed them on toilet paper or something. I don't know what the fuck their problem is. Got the same error. I'm getting these things from the library, but I don't ever have them. And in this case, it definitely did not have it. I'd never even heard of it. So I get it from one library, and it's got two films on it. And I got the same error that I got the second time I got it from the library. So in between, you know, maybe a week or two back and now, going back to pretty much yesterday, it was like a last minute, okay, I think I can see this now. Got the same freaking error on two different discs. Both of them look pristine. Both of them from different places, cared for by or not cared for by different people, whatever. Same error both times. It's at the layer change, and I get this error disc. All you can watch on this fucking thing is a terrible Edward G. Robinson courtroom drama called Illegal, while this noir classic presumably lies unreadable on the other side of this, well, not the other side, but on the second layer of this disc that it will not access. So I don't know what the hell this film is all about. I know it's got uh, Mitchum and I think Jane Greer in it again. It could have been fun. I liked that in the past a lot, but I'll never know. So thank you, Warner, you shitheads. (laughs) 
there's a Don Siegel picture too, which would be interesting. I have not seen this. It would have been nice if you did. Yeah. But it's funny, uh, you know, I, I was this one of the Warner uh, made on or made on order. You would think pictures? so, right? But, but no, this was actually a press disc from God knows, two thousand four or something like that. Okay. Because I had this issue with some of the Warner archive. Yep. Uh, those you don't know, supposedly, and now I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have this this backlog of discs they made from their prints in their library, and they actually weren't that expensive. And I have a bunch that never played. Wow. <laughs> and I contacted them after I got them. I was like, there's, there's nothing on this disc. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a problem with a lot of stupid things. You got something like that. I recently got VCI, had a sale. <laughs> it was great. I ordered three Blu-rays that were on this you know, big sale. One of them they sent me. The other one they said, oh, sorry. They didn't tell me. It was after I contacted them. I'm like, what's going on? They told me, oh, this one it was a Jala. They had too much of a demand for it, so they went out to get another pressing or something. It should be here, you know, probably sometime this week or next week or something. All right, fine, whatever. Then the middle one they sent, I put it in the player... And I got this error disk code. I'm like, what the hell? So, okay. I only got two blue players. Try it in the other one. Nope, same shit. So, I go and talk to these people about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry. The, we didn't tell anybody that was a, a BDR or something, which is the the equivalent of a burned disk for Blu-rays. And it says, wow. well, you know, maybe your firmware isn't up to date. I'm like, this one of these things, I didn't tell them what it was, but it was a PS4. This thing's pretty recent. We didn't get that that long ago. There's no way the damn firmware is not up to date, especially with, every time you plug a game in, they want you to update everything. So, right, they always, PS4s always want you to update. Yeah, yeah, so it's just a piece of shit that they sent out. So I sent it back to them, you know, under their cost, and they're supposed to give me a refund, but I haven't seen it yet. I'm like, what the hell kind of shit is this? And unfortunately, they've kind of gone the way of the wind anyway, but I have a lot of problems with a lot of something weird, all those DVD-Rs they gave. A lot of them went under. I mean, she uh, hooked me up and fixed a couple of them for me, which is good. And, you know, redid them without the label, basically, is what happens, because the, the paper label on it was doing something funny, where you couldn't access the film, where you can only access the first 40 minutes, and it well, dies. I, I think that's one of the reasons why she got out of that whole DVD-R yeah. thing. Yeah, it was no, a mistake. It's... it just wasn't working. But the press discs are great, you know, the old image ones they put out. But They were fine when you got them in 1983, <laughs> 1992. Yeah, they were fine. But then, I, I don't know if anybody knows, I, I, I used to write the, when these things were on VHS, I used to write the copy on the back right. of these. Uh, yeah, we talked about that, especially when we were doing the um, the Edgar Wallace show. And the right, so I did Eurospies, Edgar Wallace, Adventure Films, uh, one of your favorite movies with the, oh, the Jungle Adventure thing. Oh, uh, I know. Anyway. The one with Sergeant Bray and uh, Horse Frank. Yes. Yeah. 13 yes, Days to yes. Die. 13 Days to Die, yes. I, I did a lot of these things. And and then I actually, uh, when Mike was still alive, I said, could I get like, copies on DVD-R of these things because I can't be just dead. And yeah, I, Mike sent me a box, like a hundred of that's the problem man. I, I don't consider it their fault it's just a shitty replication no, but you know yeah it's it's what they used and it was it's pretty much also the disc you know it, you know it, I, I was in the business blood times video back in the day and you know the type I of disc tried, you get does the impact yeah it. i tried to get tdk that was still around at the time sony you know, was still around at the time maxwell mm -hmm. Although Maxwell was more higher end, you know, and they'd do the recording and try to make it nice. But, you know, when these guys are trying to, they have big orders. They were a big company. Oh, yeah. They had to get, like, fucking the cheapest fucking thing. 
And then they slap a paper label on top, which oh, offsets it because it's like harder for the the player to read that way. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, we're not not gonna no. No, I love Lisa. You have to kid me. <laughs> it's just part of this whole discussion about like shitty Blu-rays and uh, DVDRs and Warner, which were press discs, so they got no excuse. <laughs> they got no excuse. What's next? All right, so uh, next up, he does Where Danger Lives. Scary Joan Bennett gone to hell lookalike Faith Domarog, who'll be playing herself as a washed-up beauty queen only a decade or so later in House of Seven Corpses, is a Jane Doe botched suicide who catches the eye of night shift Dr. Bob Mitchum, who winds up stalking her despite his much more appealing girlfriend, Tarzan's bushy bride, Maureen O'Sullivan, and instantly the two are a couple inside of the first five minutes of the film. Gotta love old Hollywood for its realism and deep understanding of humans and relationships, eh? Turns out she's a rich bitch living with her father, the invisible man himself, Claude Rains, and when the old man informs her they're headed out of the country, he confesses his overnight deep and devoted love. Surprise, he's not her old man, he's her old man. They're married. So finally, Bob gets the picture and splits, only to turn right back around when the guy starts beating her with a fireplace poker. They fight, the old man dies, but did he really kill her? And what about the paralyzing concussion he used to stand in the fight? And what's that news item about the old man being smothered to death with a pillow? Silly melodrama that passes for noir, but it's so formulaic and by the book, not to mention soapy, that it doesn't really feel like one, visuals aside. Mitchum is his usual sleepy-eyed, two-fisted self, Reigns is suitably sneering, and Domarag is uh, her scary overwrought self. I mean, didn't Bob see that nude scene from Tarzan? Why the fuck would he dump O'Sullivan, even looking kind of old and with a terrible hairdo here, for Faith Domarag of all people? We'll talk about the director a bit more in the next film, but suffice to say that despite occasional night sequences that work, he's hardly Hitchcock. At best, he scrapes middling in the noir genre, apparently being more of a ladies' man than all-night partier than he ever was a director. You mentioned Marino Sullivan is bushy. You don't mean that bushy. Uh, yeah, I do. Did you see Tarzan? <laughs> oh, God, to watch Tarzan. Yeah, there's a famous uh, scene there in the, in the underwater scene. <laughs> I, 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 I see. I... <laughs> No, I did not see where danger lives. You know, sometimes it's hard for me to catch up on all these things. But thank you for sharing. I've also yeah. heard that it might be a stunt double. I don't know. It looked like her to me. So, so 1951, his kind of woman, Tisa and Crazy Mia Faro's father, the rather undistinguished Aussie who gave us Where Danger Lives and the Big Clock, drops another noir. One apparently so bad that Howard Hughes rewrote and recast the thing under Soylent Green and Narrow Margin director Richard Fleischer, who was literally blackmailed into taking the assignment. And you can tell. This is true. He actually was blackmailed first. Uh, can you do this, please? Then it was, do this, and we'll let you redo Narrow Margin as an A picture. And finally, if you don't do it, that film of yours is never getting released. <laughs> Uh, so, grumpy old one-note TV actor Raymond Burr overdubs Godzilla poorly. Oh, wait, in a different movie. Uh, he's a gangster who's been deported, desperate to get back into the States. Luckily, he's found himself a sleazy plastic surgeon and a sort of look-alike yeah, in their dreams, Bob Mitchum. Yeah, Bob Mitchum, Raymond Burr. Can't hardly tell him apart, please. Who just happens to be a down-on-his-luck drifter and gambler willing to accept a few grand just to head down to an estate in Mexico to stay with people he's never heard of. On the flight down, he meets Russell, whose nasty disposition and pinched face were made popular entirely due to Howard Hughes' obsession with her linebacker shoulders and floppy breasts. Shades of James Manfield there. On a side note, apparently she was worse than all that, a Bible thumper and extremely prudish behind the scenes, to the point where Mitchell referred to her as a hard woman, quipping, Christians in a big breast too. I knew there was a reason I could never stand this woman. 
<laughs> She's got a boyfriend, none other than egghead and overacting queen of horror, Vincent Price, whose actual relations with her, surprise, surprise, turn out to be nothing more than a studio beard. Russell's just an Anna Nicole Smith type trying to find a sugar daddy, and despite his impending doom, our man Mitchum's a small enough guy to help some random newlyweds hubby win back his life savings from a super sleazy Mr. Magoo himself, Thurston Howell III in the flesh, Jim Backus. There's a hard-to-believe turn of events when the mincing Price, prone to clapping gleefully at his own hammy performances, decides to man up and take on the mobsters just to be a, quote, real-life hero, and reconcile with his strange beard, I mean wife, and trampy gold digger Russell winds up falling for the perpetually broke-to-the-point-of-joking about suicide, Mitchum. But the film's kind of a mess, some nicely shot night sequences and a snazzy set or two, filling the cover for the disjointed feel and all the extraneous character and plot elements. The film could and probably did easily exist without Bacchus or Price ever taking part. Thanks, Howard Hughes. Apparently, the rewrites, recasting, and refilming cost so much extra, it more than doubled the film's cost, extending the filming past a full year of pre-production, and added an hour and a half of footage, ensuring that it tanked horribly the box office and its place as one of the great lost leaders in Hollywood history. Thanks, Howard Hughes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. So this picture cost $1951, almost a million dollars. How the hell did that happen? But you just described how that happened. <laughs> uh, it's wild. It's you know he was so taken with Jane Russell, and and that's interesting. I think Mitchum is actually pretty decent in this. Uh, the Dublin movie has so many issues and problems. <laughs> it's funny, you know. It's it's that everybody saw Jane Russell as a moviegoer, the tabloids, <laughs> as a sex symbol. But she wound up really being a Bible thumper. Yep. You know? <laughs> I love this. Does this quote attributed to her? Christians can have big breasts too. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was Mitchum talking about it. Like, oh, yeah, well, how do you count for your sex appeal if that's true? I was like, well, Christians have big breasts too. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I, it's, it's not a terrible movie. It's not a horrible film, but it's definitely interesting. Yeah, it's a mess. Film, it's, it's not a bad It's a movie, mess, but it's interesting film in, in noir kind of history you know like hey you know what the most expensive noir was you know what it reminds me of it's not as bad as that that shitty film that who's the fellow that always hung around with Stallone Joe Spinell did uh, The Undertaker you remember what a mm. disjointed mess that was that's kind yeah. of what this is. It's, it's almost like watching a Godfrey Ho film at times. Like, why are these people in this? What, this doesn't feel like it fits, because it didn't. The, the style just shifted, because there's two different directors. You know, why is this character even in this damn thing? Because he really wasn't. <laughs> so, you know, it just becomes a huge mess. But there are moments that work in it, which, who knows? It may be down to the original Alsky director. I don't know. <laughs> Could be down to the new director, Fleischer, because his narrow margin was a good film. Anyway, next up, he does The Rocket. Mitchum is a police captain who can't be bribed in a city run by a mobster, complete with crooked government, DA, and cops. Things get down and dirty, complete with mob hits and near misses on Bob's wife, the half-assed, poorly die job Lauren Bacall of Noir, Elizabeth Scott, before one last big gotcha. But Bob outsmarts the baddie and wins through in a way that could only fly in Hollywood. Of interest more for its weird pairing of Shazam's mentor, Les Tremaine, and my man Cannon and Nero Wolf himself, William Conrad. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Yeah, we have comrades in this with at least B-listers like Mitchum and Scott. Sure enough, while well, at least 50 pounds lighter, he's still a formidable figure, chewing gum throughout in a Dick Tracy trench coat and snap brim hat as the seedy police detective who's been bought out by the mob. One of those semi-noirs like Deadline USA, this one's more akin to an episode of The Untouchables than anything else. It's very no budget, and while watchable enough, hardly top-tier entertainment. Yeah, Bill, Bill Conrad. <laughs> yeah. 
This is kind of fun. Can I? You know, I I remember this movie. And you know, I watched it for the show, and I was like, "Hey, I forgot this film. It's it's a lot of fun. You know, it's not hardcore noir, but at the same time, it's got it's got enough really fun things going on that it's like, how can you not like it? You got the cast. You got like Robert Hutton. I always like Robert Hutton. You know, and Les Tremaine. You know, from all of those great sci-fi cheesy movies. Yep. Uh, you know, Bob mentioned Bob Ryan, uh, William Talman, who I, who I always enjoyed. Uh, people may not know uh, the name, but they, they certainly know his face. He was really interesting in a lot of, a lot of films. And um, Elizabeth Scott. And it's funny. I, I I developed this thing for Elizabeth Scott. You know, <laughs> she went over. She went. Shut up. <laughs> she went over to England. And, um, she did some hammer noirs and stuff there too. She did some hammer noir stuff, and you know, I, I backed well, like everybody does. I backtracked on my on my on my British noir stuff. And after I went through the horror, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a journey into this. This is years and years and years ago. I'm like, who's Elizabeth Scott? Oh my god! <laughs> you know, she's got the soldier. She's got like, okay, take my money. You know, <laughs> and I can see why. It works with her. It works with her because y'all. And the, the poster for the for the racket is just really good because you got like, you got they got this like the posters of the fifties were terrible overall. Yeah, movie posters. And yeah, and this is another Howard Hughes production, by the way. Yep. I don't know if you realize yep, that. And so, posters for these 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 kind of noir pictures where they're interesting really well conceived or like shitty and this is a shitty one because <laughs> they like superimposed like Bob Mitchell's face looking forlorn at like <laughs> Robert Ryan holding Elizabeth Scott and she's kind of looking at him like I'll blow you later <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I just it's a good film it's actually pretty enjoyable it's on the cheap end but um, I guess this is at the period where Howard Hughes uh it's just funding these pictures left and right, yep. you know, Hollywood films. And it's funny, you, you mentioned Scott. When I, when I was a teenager, and I, I think even a young teenager, I've seen things like, you know, In a Lonely Place and uh, Mirror's Dead Reckoning or something. You know, it's just not too bad, whatever. I was, I was halfway interested, like, you know, like, okay, it's not bad, yeah. whatever, she's kind of smoky. And then I saw Lauren Bacall, and I'm like, oh, my God, she's like a bad Lauren Bacall. <laughs> and that's all she's ever been to me since. But I could see how somebody would like this. It's funny. Well, 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 yeah, but Lauren McCall will never do you. Elizabeth Scott might. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Put your lips together and blow. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so anyway. <laughs> you have to go back in time to do this. That's for sure. God, they're all dead now. You're kidding me. <laughs> so 1952, now we're up to Macau. Damn good late noir from, of all people, Dietrich obsessive Joseph von Sternberg, who more or less lived out his own Blue Angel role with the bisexual ice queen. Unlike the prior ritzel mitchin pairing, which was fairly abysmal, placing this one into the hands of a veteran expressionist director like von Sternberg results in a much darker, far more watchable picture. Building on then-hoary exotica trappings, this is the sort of picture that bases himself in an unfamiliar foreign land, in this case a Hong Kong-adjacent port then still held by the Portuguese, and features foreigners speaking to locals in pidgin English because it's much easier to understand me want the biggie shave chop chop than to learn a phrase in Chinese or at least have the dignity to speak in proper English to people. 
as typical of noir. This is one of those random folks bumping into each other at the wrong place at the wrong time and find themselves embroiled in a deadly business that has nothing to do with them. A gangster casino owner discovers some Interpol agent has arrived with an effort to bust him. The suspects being Mitchum, a cynical SGI and snazzy student drifter, blows the old Jane Russell, and perennial psychic William Bendix, a really suspect lingerie salesman. No surprise who the agent really is, but partly due to circumstance and partly due to Bendix's machinations, Mitchum finds himself fingered, and when he blows off a bribe to leave the port because he wants to get into Russell's oversized granny panties, he winds up a target for hired assassins. There's another girl involved just to confuse things further, and a few awful torch songs to cement the fact that the perpetually sneering and eye-rolling Russell is utterly without talent. The whole thing turning into a self-fulfilling prophecy by the end, with Hunt and Mitchum winds up taking on a murdered Bendix's mission. Yeah, it's far from perfect and not likely to be on anyone's top 10 film noir list, but top 20 or 25, possibly. Certainly for one of its vintage, 1952 is pretty late in the game for this sort of thing, but Von Sternberg and our trio of leads deliver well enough, particularly Mitchum. Oh, really good, actually. Yeah. It was, you know, it's like me with prog rock, uh, you know, I, I listen to about uh, 10 to 15 new albums and new bands a week. And, you know, someone like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> And and, and, and and then I get something and I was like, hey, I really like this. Is, it's not revelatory. It's not groundbreaking. It's not extremely different, but they got it. When a band gets it, yeah. you get it and you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. The same thing probably with you for metal. Yeah. yeah, I'm watching a bunch of Robert Mitchum films for the show. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, because I like the guy, and that's one of the reasons why I suggested this, you know. And, and, and I really wanted to see this, having not seen this probably since I was a child, which is a long time ago. And I said, hey, I like this. This is, it's also arty. It's also filmed in, you know, we got these, uh, these uh, you know, the, the, the director works with these shadow things you know, on, on the wall, and I'm like, really enjoying this. You know? And I said, oh, shit, Brad Dexter is in this. You know, Brad Dexter is one of the guys from The Magnificent Seven, that classic film. And, you know, uh, you know I'll for years, I was like, who the fuck is Brad Dexter? <laughs> yeah. He was one of the guys in The Magnificent Seven, you're like, Robert Vaughn, Steve McQueen, Joel Brenner, Brad Dexter, who the fuck is that? But, <laughs> but Brad, Brad Dexter had this career, long career, you know, G-Man, bad guys, noir-type stuff. And this is one of those pictures you can find Brad Dexter in. That was in the side books. It's really good. Mitchum was good. Uh, Jane Russell. And you know what? This is going to tie into a couple of our statements earlier. I wonder, and I don't want to be presumptuous, you know, is this the woke decade? I mean, after all, they want to hang Cuomo, the governor of New York, yeah. for alleged for allegedly making statements to women, which we have yet to have any fucking evidence about. Yeah, I don't know if I believe it, but whatever. Don't hang up yet, folks. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have on film, on film and on audio, several different women that ex-president and ruler of nowhere, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. has made terrible statements. And there's the famous one from that TV show, which we never knew existed until they ran, ran that thing into the oblivion. <laughs> and and all these women came out. He touched me. He came on to me. He said he's rich. He's Donald Trump. How is that okay? And he stayed president for four years. Yep. And he still has know, 72% of the country backing him. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody is like, Cuomo, 
Get out. Uh, you show me some hard evidence, and then I'll be right back with you there, buddy. I don't see any hard evidence. Yeah, I mean. No. It's like the Bill Clinton thing. Some chubby girl blew him. <laughs> that didn't bother and me. I was like, oh, so what? <laughs> it didn't bother me because we all saw Hillary. Yeah, come on, Hillary's. And we, we, we know what kind of relationship yeah. that is. We're not going there with that. That's why she never became president. <laughs> but, and then, and then when, when, when Trump was running, and this is the weirdest thing, when Trump was running for president, he brought out women who alleged that Bill Clinton had uh, suggestively or physically touched him or molested them. And they were like grandmothers. And Bill wasn't even that old then. And I'm like, I don't get that, you know. So he could do whatever he wants. And he became and stayed president with accolades from his cult. Mm-hmm. And I, don't get me wrong. We, I know I went off on tangent here. But, so what, what am I leading to? A thought had occurred to me watching a bunch of these Howard Hughes produced, starring or co-starring Jane Russell, mm-hmm. who in print and according to her co-stars at the time, they said, oh, she's a staunch uh, Catholic, you know, blah, blah, see, blah. I don't think, <laughs> my own two cents, that Howard Hughes would have put so much money into right. these kind of pictures. Starring somebody that was not. So I'm thinking the absolute opposite. We all know what happened with Rock Hudson, correct? Yep. Okay. So I'm not. Uh, no, it makes sense because I had always thought of this as a Hearst, Marion Davies kind of thing. And you know, he was trying yeah. to make her and break her or whatever the hell. Because that was his yeah, new I, discovery. He was really hot for her and rolling her head. I think this so. is what was going on here. And I think they put out, and they might have done it intentionally. Because he was very, very rich and very, very powerful oh, yeah. richest man in the world right, at that time. Yep. I think Hughes could just have easily said, you're going to put out the smoke screen cover. He might have been doing everybody in Hollywood. <laughs> very possible. You know, it's quite possible. Or she was Hughes' co- coveted thing. You know? Nobody and else touches her, right? I get that. Nobody else touches her. I'm going to put her in every picture. When did this start? The Outlaw, right? Was that yep, the first one? that was one? the first one. And that's, that's already, what, 10 years before this yep. or something like that. So it's like this is going on for a while. I doubt. I just doubt. You know, so I'm watching this movie after I watch a few other pictures. Like, why do they keep co-starring Mitchum and Russell? Because <laughs> in print, what, what were those things called? Uh, photo play and Movie Maker, I think those were the, yep. the tabloids. Of the, you know, glossy pictures. You know, some, like a lot of black and white photographs and shit. Rock Hudson was in half of those, but <laughs> you know, with the girl on his arm, yep. you know, and when's Rock and Daisy gonna get married? <laughs> well, that great um, picture that I found today of uh, Tony Curtis lifting weights in his really bad underwear with Janet Lee. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Janet really was posting a lot of stuff uh, when. Tony's birthday was around recently, and I was going to send her our discussion. <laughs> I thought twice of it because she's so nasty to her. Yeah. So, Not my favorite woman, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I love Janet. I've always said a thing for Janet. <sighs> That's my kind of girl. <laughs> he is kind of woman. There you go. You can remake that picture. Oh, I, I, but I thought you were hot for her daughter there and her depends. 
Who's your daughter? Jimmy Lee Curtis. We're talking about, well, yeah, both of them. <laughs> you and Michael Myers. <laughs> Okay, next is... So, next up is Angel Face. The most most entertaining, (laughs) if apparently most difficult to work with behind the scenes, Mr. Freeze, Otto Preminger, drops this film noir with our man Bob and weepy starlet Gene Simmons. No, not the Republican shit who wrote the most juvenile material to kiss. As the kind of girl who falls for a man when he slaps her and puts her in her place. A man's man. Pump my muscles. Anyway... This is a strange sort of noir where Simmons is a Lolita-esque femme fatale, despite looking at least in her 40s, who does her damnedest to steal away her mother's de facto boyfriend. She's putting up the money for him to get his own garage to run, despite his being an ambulance driver now. Along the way, she gets him hired as chauffeur, gets him into her bed, and winds up killing off her father instead of her intended target, her rival mother. In the end, Bob finds everything out and tries to walk away, only for her to run him down and suicide via driving off a cliff. Yay? I don't know, this feels a long way from something like Double Indemnity or Laura. Having seen more of these sort of noirs than I actually think deserve the designation over the years, I think it's become kind of a misnomer for DVD companies to sell off packages of films no one would have any interest in otherwise. To call them noir. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a noir! Weird outliers like this one just don't work for me so well as they did in my teens and 20s, when the concept was more fresh and there were only a select few available. Is it terrible? Oh, no, but I'd much rather see something like The Two Mrs. Carrolls, which doesn't have much of a reputation, than this one, which strangely does, but doesn't really deserve it. I, I have to agree with you on everything you said about this one, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have nothing else to add. Yeah, I, I saw it, and I was like, yeah, you know. I wish I could have saw White Witch Doctor, which is this next film, but no. The next one I get to is... I, I haven't seen that in years. I did see it many, many years ago. Hey, it's an adventuresque kind of melodrama. I, I remember that much. I have some memory. But I, I couldn't be more detailed to entertain you with comments. Okay. So next up is River of No Return. Oh, boy. Yeah. One more trip to the Frosty Freezy factory. Mr. Freeze, Otto Preminger, directs this stinker of a Marrow Monroe vehicle. Despite giving some strong film noir like Laura, Fallen Angel, and even Angel Face, if you want to call it that, Preminger actually had a fairly spotty career with trash like this predominating. Monroe takes the role usually filled by a far brassier character like Jane Russell or Barbara Stanwyck, delivering painful warbling songs one after the other, right from during the credits through two more numbers within the first 15 minutes. Oh, and there's a kid. Some soupable haircutted brat shows up even earlier than that. And in fact, it comes center stage in both screen time and plot. This is some seriously 50s misogynistic crap about Mitchum leaving his kid with this itinerant showgirl so he'd go to jail for killing a man, ostensibly for a good cause. Now he's out on parole, so he's come to pick up the kid, who doesn't know who his daddy is, and start a life with him. Isn't this sort of like kidnapping and a little creepy? But all this is complicated by Monroe's sleazy fiancé, Motel Hell's Rory Calhoun, who's about to serve up some kid-flavored fritters. Oh, no, that'd be a better movie. Here he's just a drunk who won a mine in a poker game and believes he's struck it rich with gold! He and Monroe head downriver and just happen to pass by Mitchum in the kid's house of Namla when <laughs> things go... <laughs> <laughs> when things go sour in the two, guess the child gets in on the rescue, save them, only to get double-crossed and left without Gunner Horse Monroe inclusive. This leaves a truly endless, hilariously awful blue-screen jaunt down a raging river on a Contiki-style raft, where Monroe and the kid look pretty damn relaxed, and Mitchin plays gondolier to eat up most of the remaining screen time. Oh, the thrilling adventure of it all. Gee, I guess they'll survive their wilderness vacation and form a new family, complete with her giving up that promising future as a Wild West sucker. I mean, showgirl. Oh, well, a woman's place is in the kitchen bouncing babies off her knee, right? 
And Rowe films suck, but good God, this one's painful, etc. Well, not all of the Rowe films suck. Oh, please. <laughs> no, it's my opinion. I don't think all Marilyn Monroe performances are terrible. I think she's, she's good in some things. I thought they had some interesting chemistry in this picture. Really? Yeah, I thought they had some interesting chemistry. I think the problem with the movie was they... they... Well, at least she wasn't doing her baby doll shtick in this one. Right. They, they, yeah, she seems to be playing someone more appropriate her age. That's number one. Number two is they bring in Otto Preminger, you know, the Führer of <laughs> you know, heart-heavy-hitting dramas. We know his, his, his credits up until this picture and some after. And, and he did some great movies. And he's doing a Western with a singing lead actress who I think she tries. You know, I, I just think they had some decent chemistry. It wasn't wonderful chemistry. Yeah, the the, the blue screen really hurts in this picture, <laughs> especially when you're shooting, you're shooting not only in Technicolor, you're shooting in, in wide scope, and, and you're going to use rear projection. It's going to hurt. Yeah. So uh, it's not a terrible film. There's, there's a lot better out there. Next up, he does The Night of the Hunter. Charles Lawton, who gave such memorable roles as Dr. Moreau in Island of Lost Souls and Captain Bly in Mutiny and the Bounty, further delivering a blustering decadence in such films as Jamaica Inn, The Old Dark House, and Spartacus, here drops his only directorial bit, a semi-noir about a serial killer itinerant preacher who comes to town, loves them, grabs their money, and leaves them dead. Well, it's actually a lot less exciting than that. The preacher, our boy Bob, of course, only seems to go after one woman in this movie, of all people, Shelley Winters, actually marrying her to suss out where her dead hubby, who he shared a cell with over a stolen car offense, left the profits from a bank robber. He does eventually kill her, but 99% of the running time is an aged Lillian Gish and Winters' two kids trying to escape him and or convince someone or other of what's really going on. And nearly two hours of some old bag and two obnoxious children is nobody's got to have a good time. Lawton was almost universally praised by his cast as a director, but this was his only outing in that role. But like Cape Fear, which we'll be discussing shortly, it's a case of overhype and under-delivery. Much praised, but barely watchable. And Cape Fear's a hell of a lot better than Night of the Hunter, that's for sure. While I loved some of his early work, especially True of Island, Jamaica Inn, but Wales' old dark house was certainly atmospheric and entertaining enough. Lawton wisely stayed away from the director's chair here and after. He may have been great with actors, but what a stinker of a film. I'm sure you'll disagree, so go ahead. Well... It's interesting because this is this is a movie that has the uh, the germ of the idea for the character that Mitchell was playing in Cape Fear, and it has the uh, he's a creepy. It's funny, you know, We we've seen him in umpteen uh, war films and uh, westerns, and for the past ten years, various noirs and attempts at romantic melodramas. That's for the most part what he's been doing. And they kind of change it up. And they they just make this guy who's unconventionally handsome to be this killer. I remember something, you know, Shelley Winters in 1955 did not look like Shelley Winters at the Poseidon Adventure. <laughs> no, she was no. she was no, she she was she was doable at that <laughs> well let's put it this one. way you remember you hear those jokes about how she can make the boat float and all that stuff she's not like there at all but <laughs> no 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 she was actually a rather attractive woman. well it's kind of like saying angela lansbury looked better in the 40s than she did in the 70s like i don't know i see what you're saying but yeah thank you so anyway uh it's it, i think it's worth seeing for also lawton is a very interesting he's a theater director when, he's, when he wasn't acting, he directed a lot of theater. And and he just had a really 
bizarre freaking eye for camera placement and for the lighting and stuff. I'm sure he was another guy who's, you know, the whole crew's behind him and going, whatever you want, Charles, and, you know, Charles being Charles, and, <laughs> yes, well, yeah, we're going to do it. Push it over here. I think it's the Yeah, put it over here. <laughs> Very expressionistic-looking film. That, you know, I mean, if he was filming something other than this old bag, okay, yes, yeah, she was from the silent days, I understand that, but this prominent role of some old bag running off a house full of children, and like, really? That, and that's most of the film running time. It's like following them around and these kids searching for clues. Or, oh, God. But you don't get it, though. So I think the thing that drew him to this is that it's very theatrical. Yeah, yeah it's definitely theatrical. You know, it's, yeah, it's very theatrical. And, and so he picks, which is odd, in a way, that he mentioned, who's not a very, he's not one of those, at least at this point, not one of those actors who's really putting himself out there through the screen. But he will do that shortly. For the next, uh, geez, five or six years, he's basically doing war films and um, cowboy films. Uh, There might have been a comedy or two in there, I guess. Uh, But the next one I saw was Cape Fear. Did you see anything in between those? Oh, yeah. A couple things. Uh, the last time I saw Archie's directed by Jack Webb, of all people. I can't wait till you start watching Dragnet. Uh, <laughs> no, that'd be painful. <laughs> uh, that's what you say now. Lewis, I watched Dragnet. It's fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what do you say about Starsky and Hutch, huh? Mm, that's a person. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, Jack Webb, who directed Co-stars, Richard, uh, Martha Hyerson's France, Noyan, I think it's French, Asian. Uh, she was yes. another theatrical actress who had small thing. Harvey Lambeck's in his big Bob Strauss, Don Knotts. It's kind of Harvey great. Harvey Lambeck, the zipper. <laughs> the zipper, yeah. It's a Derek von World Zippa. War, post-war film, you know, a bunch of bodies getting together, you know, France, again. <laughs> Plays this like Japanese spices. She's actually Eurasian, you know. Yeah. They're really dragging her around there. It was an expensive picture for some reason. It's very comical, it's very light and breezy. And it's fun actually to see Bob Mitchum do something a little lighter. Because the next year he did Cape Fear, which you want to get. To. Yes. I was actually just thinking about that. <laughs> That whole thing there. It was like, if Paul Michael Glazer shows up on Dragnet, then maybe I'll watch an episode. <laughs> it's funny watching the show. I was like, oh, I remember, oh, David Solier, that half-assed singing career, don't give a bonus, baby. And, of course, Salem's Lot, which is great, and he's decent in that. And he did some other stuff later. Who remembers Paul Michael Glazer? I'm watching the show, I'm like, holy shit, that guy makes this show. David Soul's like, at best, the sidekick. And I was like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, Cape Fear, 1962, we're into already. Gregory Peck, America's most stilted actor, is a prosecuting attorney who gets stalked by a rapist. He sent out a hick-accented Bob Mitchum. The judge is none other than Get Smart's chief, Edward Platt, which left me waiting for him to drop the cone of silence or Peck to make a phone call with a shoe, but no such <laughs> luck. Instead, it's a very predictable if dark stalk and home invasion shtick that unravels way too slow, given that we can telegraph the entire thing from a capsule synopsis. Mitchum follows him and the wife out bowling. He kills the family dog. Being filmed, Noir Peck goes dark by hiring a few mugs to beat the crap out of Mitchum to convince him to lay off, but Bob's too tough and beats them up instead. Then the tit-for-tat really gets nuts, leading to 
the murder of a deputy and endangerment of First Bob's wife, and then his daughter before it's all over. Interestingly, rather than kill the guy and end it all, he offered the more torturous and compromised option of jailing him for life. No accounting for appeals court or life sentences that last 7 to 15 years nowadays, but hey, this is the early 60s, maybe things were different then. Some of the cops here went on to greater fame, namely Martin Balsam and Telly Savalas, and as a pure film, yeah, it's watchable and moody for an early 60s noir, but by this point in history, the golden age of noir was well behind us by more than a decade, in fact, and few seem quite as predictable as this one, Barr and Mitchum turning the tables at a few crucial junctures towards the end. Uh, not the worst by any means, but it has a much better rep than I think it deserves. That little turd Martin Scorsese did a pointless sequel many years on with his pal De Niro, our man Joe Don Baker, and of all straight men, Nick Nolte, interestingly giving Mitchum Peck and Balsam roles as well. Oh, it's a really creepy film. Uh, Mitchum, Mitchum really just goes for gusto here. It's funny, it's J. Lee Thompson, who no one up until this time, uh, you know, I think he did uh, TV, his early career was TV, I think. And, and Later he'd do all those Chick Watson films. He would do, yeah, some of them quite good. I think he did, uh, what's the one, uh, Tender Midnight? Yes, you know? oh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> and he did a couple of other things, many other things. Uh, this is really good. I, I Not a great film, but it's very eerie. 1962, it's a shock to hell out of a lot of people. Dick Mitchell was, yeah, I always had a problem with Gregory Peck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's like I said in the last show. It's like somebody stuck a mop in the little room and stuck it up his ass to prop him up, and it's like turned him on. <laughs> well, he had a huge following, and and you know I did not dislike the remake, Cape, Cape Fear, uh, which they nicely gave Peck, Mitch, and Martin Balsam uh, roles. Yeah, they had bit parts, right? They gave him bit parts. Yeah, Nick Nolte was Nick Nolte. No, Nick. Oh, right, it was Nick Nolte yeah, it was had Nolte. the Peck part, and right. Robert De Niro looked feral. <laughs> very feral. Uh, like, I like how Bob takes things like, Bob, you're going to be a psycho. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> Locks himself to sanitarium for six months. I'm fucking crazy now. <laughs> um, that was I, like a friend of ours was like, uh, when Angel Heart came out, he's like, oh, yeah, De Niro, he's really like got into the role of playing the devil. And, you know, people were scared of him on set. I'm like, please. <laughs> I would have been more scared of Mickey Rourke. Right? Well, that's because he's fucked up. <laughs> he's fucked up. Unpredictable. Uh, where, where are we going next? All right, so <laughs> next up, the list of Adrian Messenger. Yes. Discussed in more depth on our Tony Curtis show, this shit show of special defects is a boring sitting room chat fest with one or two long, dull fox hunt sequences, all leading up to an end credit surprise where everyone pulls off their makeup and masks to reveal themselves as famous actors and singers at the time, each of whom had given a few seconds to five minutes worth of cameo in the preceding film unrecognizably. Without that last three minutes or so, the film was completely worthless and forgettable, so do yourself a favor and just catch the end credits on YouTube or something. But if you want to hear more about it, check out our Tony Curtis show because we did talk about it there. Yeah, we really, we discussed this a little bit more on our Tony Curtis show, uh, our tribute to Tony Curtis, and it's a fun novelty for its time. It's like, uh, what is it, like Knives Out, that, that uh, Daniel Craig thing, which had like lots of major Hollywood people. It looks like they're going to be more major Hollywood people in Knives Out too, which is like a clue kind of, Clouseau kind of thing. Uh, this is this is like that pre-clue, pre-clouseau, and I don't think John Houston was savvy enough to, to bring off this kind of picture, because it's kind of early for them to do something like that. I think that they were going for a little bit of lightness. It just looks too heavy. You know, it just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's a heavy kind of puzzly mystery about British agents and, and, and who's killing off who, but the, the cast is phenomenal. 
problem. But it's weird, though, because you go there to see these people. Okay, look at all this great cast, if you know that they're in it anyway. And you don't see them. I was like, what the hell? Because, you know, the makeup wasn't great or anything, but for the most part, you can't really recognize them. A couple of them are Kirk Douglas, you can tell. Yeah, yeah, you can always, you can always tell Kirk Douglas. <laughs> and Bert, but, you know, it, it's at the end that you see them, like, oh, there they were. Okay, so it's a nice little surprise, but it's like uh, the crying game without the end reveal. Like, well, okay, what's the point of this thing? <laughs> you know? So, what a way to go is the next one. Okay. Lee Thompson, again, who worked with Charles Bronson on any number of films and dropped such oddities as Happy Birthday to Me, Chuck Norris' Firewalker, and the Richard Chamberlain King Solomon's Minds, which we talked about in our Bronson, Norris, and Cannon shows, respectively, delivers this asinine Hollywood starfucker comedy with rap packers Shirley MacLaine going through her past lives and Dean Martin as a sleazy rich suitor. Her mother's poor and shoves her into betting some rich guy. To her credit, Shirley rebels against that, but winds up finding guys like Chimney Sweep Dick Van Dyke, Jackson Pollock analog Paul Newman, and dinner theater baggy pants song and dance man Gene Kelly, who of course all wind up striking it rich and then dying on her. Rich but miserable, she keeps on trying, with our boy Bob as a wealthy businessman she falls for and convinces to retire to farm life, which winds up killing him as well. In the end, the now impoverished but magically, quote, happy Dino reappears as a janitor, and they live happily ever after in squalor. Boy, what a mixed message this one delivers. I mean, are you supposed to side with the mother and whore yourself out for money? Or are you supposed to submit the failure at life and be ostensibly happy, despite the fact that even being comfortable requires way too much cash nowadays? I don't know. It had been a lot easier even in the 70s. I know my folks' generation could pick their job just by having a liberal arts degree, own a house and cars on some rather low salaries early in life. Try pulling that shit now after four or five decades of Reagan and deregulation and tax breaks for the rich and corporate. Funneling wealth upwards really worked well, huh? Bottom line, typical Hollywood bullshit, the sort that would and should never fly nowadays and kind of justly forgotten. What did you think about this one? I always liked this movie. You did? <laughs> I, I, as, as, a, as a young man, I was, uh, was still single digits. And then it would be rerun at infinitum, probably when I was 10, 12 years old, like for the next five, six years. Yeah. I don't know. I, I never paid attention to Shirley MacLaine. Then suddenly I was like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a little weird. It's a little kinky. It's not. I don't think it was the norm to have, like, you know, this is another Starfucker movie. You have Paul Newman, Robert Mitchum, Dean Martin, Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly. Jim, Jim Kelly. Kelly. That would have been good. That would have been good. Robert Cummings and Dick Van Dyke. You know, you I would have been in all your husbands. <laughs> yeah, no, you had all these big-name stars, and some from television, and, and, and they, were, they were dying off. It was kind of a black comedy and it wasn't terrible, and, and I enjoyed it. And I was like, poor Shirley. But <laughs> I thought she was kind of hot in that, too. And, uh, so she ended up with Dean, right? That was the end, right? Yes. Dean came back. Uh, but he was poor. He was like a janitor then. So. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of sweet. I, I, I actually liked it a lot better than you did, sir. I believe that. <laughs> you were affection for those early 60s kind of cheesy, sweet TV shows and movies. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't know, it seems that way. Definitely more to me. Right, so, 1968, five card stud. You people didn't think you needed a church as a big doghouse. You need a praying place, something fearful. You know, I know why. I'll tell you why. Because you're hell bent for hell. Weird ass western from the man behind the Elvis films, Hal Wallace. As you might expect, he brings a broad, brassy, almost slapstick touch to a film that deserved the feel of one of those creepy Italian spaghetti westerns like And God Said the Cane or The Stranger's Gun Down. 
A goofy-ass Maurice Jarre score doesn't help matters, leaving this one feeling like a cross between a Hollywood comedy of the era and Tomb of Torture, a.k.a. Metamcycle. It's that weird and inappropriate. Casting of all people, Dean Martin as the protagonist and Yafikoto as the helpful bartender come de facto psychic who witnessed it all, it's about a guy who cheats at poker and gets strung up for it. The ringleader of the hangman's none other than our man Roddy McDowell, who we did a show on, butching it up as a Klaus Kinski-style psycho cowpoke whose sister happens to be Dean's girlfriend. Another odd casting choice, Uncle Jesse, Denver Pyle, shows up every now and again, those of you who watch the Dukes of Hazard. And here's another example of Jarre's absurd scoring. When he visits his scary old girlfriend, it's just some finger-symbol-heavy Arabian music clipped straight from Harem Scarum. This is in a Wild West desert setting and an aged-out plain Jane and corduroy pants, so there's zero correlation to excuse this. What, he just hand over whatever leftover bits he had? Film genre be damned? I'd rather watch Harem Scare than <laughs> it was fit there. So, Mitchum shows up as a half-assed fire and brimstone preacher, proving once and for all why he was never offered a recording career when he, quote, sings a hammer to, insert major shudder. And Inger Stevens drops by as a hooker, shave one buck, haircut 250, miscellaneous 20 bucks, before heading home to drop a few too many downers and join the John Belushi fan club so to speak, which he did in real life. Once Mitchum arrives, almost immediately two more members of that poker game wind up dead, one with his head stuffed in a barrel of flour and another in a barbed bar wire necktie. What's odd is that Wallace and director Henry Hathaway actually do catch a bit of atmosphere in scenes like Mitchum and Martin's first meeting when a church bell starts ringing in the night fog, only to find another murder, this time hanging from the bell rope. The problem is it's never sustained. It falls prey to Jar's goofy, happy Disney on Trailer Park meth score, Uncle Jesse and Roddy going full-on farce mere seconds later, and all the Deglo bright color schemes the film makes its go-to. The big mystery that even a four-year-old who wasn't paying a lick of attention but still guessed within the first two minutes of the film comes out when Mitchum holds his Bible as well as Trump did in the infamous Hitlerian photo shoot because it's hollowed out for a pocket-sized six-gun. Why he even needed to bump off every member of the car game to protect himself from some exposure isn't clear, but hey, it's an Elvis film trying to be a mystery or some shit when Roddy McDowell camping up as if he were Kinski and Uncle Jesse and Dean Martin in it. It has its moments, but shows why the Italians are the only nation who can make the Western worth watching. Yeah, it's actually a lot better than you would think if, you know, it's 1968. We, and by the way, folks, we had to skip a lot of films, otherwise, you know, the show would be interminable and you'd, you'd hang up. <laughs> we, we do have to skip, you know, for time and for our our own... Own sanity. Our own sanity. Thank you. <laughs> our own sanity. And I think we're doing a good job. Uh, this is a strange... Yeah, you, you really nailed it. It's a, it's a strange film for a Western. And for this cast, if you watch it, Actually, I think you should watch it based on our uh, our recommendation, which is not, you know, a force. It's a, it seems from you a two-and-a-half-star recommendation. For me, you're going to get a three-star. I'd give it a three. All right, it's so just, three. Yeah, both of us are giving a three because with this cast, you're going to say, well, I'm not going to. No, Dean Martin has been good. This is one of the times where he's mainly good, and Robert Mitchum is is good primarily and and it's just in a, a very maybe we can even say italian-esque influential thing you know italian picture italian westerns are very big around this time period they have been for at least three years in the box office i'm sure somebody somewhere said you better take a look at some of these pictures <laughs> it's sort of like a town called hell around that time so yeah. you know they were paying attention yeah they were paying attention and and uh, i i like the cast so you know the, that it's got a, it's got that going for it. So it's not entirely a misfire. It's good enough to check it out. So we're jumping ahead again another few years to 1974 for the Yakuza, one of the films that made me want to do the show in the first place. During the 70s, probably due to the influence of Polanski's Chinatown and the subsequent success of the Elliot Gould Marlowe picture of The Long Goodbye, which we talked about in our Elliot Gould show, neo-noir briefly became a thing. 
We took a few such pictures in our gold and short rampling shells, for instance, but very prominent among this all-too-brief resurgence were the trio of such done by an aging Robert Mitchum. This was actually my first exposure to such, and possibly Mitchum himself, as an Asia-obsessed youth back when anything non-Western was harder to get than folks nowadays could ever imagine. Even bastardized glimpses like Red Sun or the David Carradine Kung Fu were welcome rarities and windows into a forbidden world back then. How much more perfect, therefore, something like Shogun or a full six years prior, this Sidney Pollock production? Bringing 50-something noir anti-hero Mitchum together with Family Affairs Brian Keith, Where's Mr. French? And Sonny Chiba's gangster pal Ten Kakakura of Gogo 13 and Bullet Train fame. This one makes, takes for the time a fairly deep dive into Japanese culture, with Mitchum as a former Marine who fell for a local, but like poor Nick Adams, her upbringing and family ties kept her refusing his bits to marry. Complicating matters is her brother, Takakura, so outraged by their interracial miscegenation as to cut off ties with his sister and become a gangster, but at the same time with a deep geary to Mitchum for saving his sister in a given incident. Further, there's a secret daughter in the mix, and eventually things get even crazier when all these relationships turn out to be something else entirely, and Ken and Bob wind up taking on the Yakuza and a hit put on them both by, of all people, Keith. As with Shogun, the most important aspect of all this is the insight into the crazy culture of Japan, and the lead's admittedly rare ability to pay respect to and operate more or less within said culture despite being a gaijin outsider. It's perhaps a bit grim, but you can see the day-glow, blood-drenched silliness of Tarantino being indebted to this film as much as it ever was to something like Lady Scorpion or Lady Snowblood films he's so often accredited to. It's less pointed and grim than those Battle Without Honor Humanity films, and for an American production of the early to mid-70s to see Mitchum and Takakura storming through those traditional Yakuza meetings with sword in hand is a stunning entree into the gangster and Jambara films that Japan churned out simultaneously, but which really wouldn't hit these shirts till a full 20 years more or later in the mid to late 90s. Not a perfect film, particularly in retrospect, but taken as one part of a very big pool of available cinema, it's relatively minor. But in the 70s and 80s, when you were lucky to catch something like the Bushido Blade or Circle of Iron or some Hong Kong Kung Fu theater on a Saturday afternoon, the Yakuza was the shit. And Mitchum delivers a world-weary but believable man who'd have both past and entree therein. Ah, it's a very good film. It's uh, interesting that you have Sidney Pollack, who's never been thought of as an auteur, as director. Um, Although he's got some really interesting credits, like the Ca- Scalp Hunters, Castle Keep, very weird movie. They shoot horses, don't they? Jeremiah Johnson, a very strange Robert Redford Western. Three Days of the Convor, Condor, excellent film. He then did a bunch of weird stuff toward the end. Although the occasional good movie now and then. Uh, and then he was uh, cast in comic relief in, in many films, too. So he was never thought of like an auteur, but yeah, he... Decent, but so he directed this. Paul Schrader and Robert Town worked together on the screenplay. So right away, you know, you got some good stuff going. That they adhered to Japanese tradition so much to not make a mockery of some of the stuff going on here. It's just really good. The movie, the movie looks great. It'd be a great double bill with Ridley Scott's Black Rain, mm-hmm. which also stars Ken Takakura. And Michael Douglas. And it's kind of a similar but different enough film. Yeah, Mitchum's greatness. And it was one of the sort of like it's 1974. So it's sort of like he he has a uh, sort of a, a uh, rebirth of sorts. And I saw we skipped two pictures. I'm just going three, three movies. Actually, I would just speak up briefly because sure. you didn't mention one was Going Home, 1971 film. Um, directed by Herb Leonard. This one really runs under the radar. Uh, I've never seen this in the theater. So we, we mentioned earlier, uh, Mitchum, uh, Kate Fear, and uh, the other film. He played really prick, evil guys. 
And uh, so going home, I, it's, it was raw and, and really nasty. That's probably why I never got relief. It was MGM picture. It's about the time actors were starting to do weird things. Like Burt Lancaster directed this and starred in this very uh, strange movie called uh, Midnight, Midnight, uh, Mid Midnight Man. And uh, just actors were doing, taking on odd roles. And, you know, he wasn't quite Twilight years for Mitchum at this point. So he, he's released from prison after, like, murdering his wife. His son witnessed the man killing, killing the wife, you know, when he was a, a child. And it's very strange. It's a psychological thriller, actually. Brenda Vaccaro's in this. You know, uh, salty-voiced, husky-voiced woman. Mm -hmm. uh, Jan Michael Vincent, when he was still not drinking. It's a strange little film, very unpleasant. You're going into it knowing <clears throat> you're going to watch a film beginning with a guy who raped and killed his wife coming out of prison. So where's this going anyway? Speaking of Westerns, and one of the great psycho Western filmmakers was Ralph Nelson. Everybody remembers he did Soldier Blue. Wrath of God is one strange freaking Western. You had the Mitchell, Frank Langella, John Colocos. Hammy stage actor, Victor Bono, your favorite, Rita Hayworth, <laughs> and a cast of characters. Basically, you know, you got the heroic guy who everyone thinks he's a preacher, a reverend, but he's actually got a Django-like coffin full of weapons. There's another picture that was a little maybe too violent. Uh, it may have been influenced by, by Django itself, and uh, I think Scott fell behind fell behind the scenes because there are other pictures that, that, that people seem to recall more. Friends of Eddie Coyle. I'm surprised you didn't see that. Peter Yates? Mm -hmm. Talk about downbeat neo-noir crime. Killer cast. Lots of people, you recognize their faces beside Peter Boyle, Richard Jordan, Stephen Keats, Alex Rocco, Joe Santos, Mitchell Ryan. Mitchell Ryan from... <sighs> Dark Shadows. He was uh, the original uh, Blake. Yes, and tons of the, the rookies and tons of TV shows. Mm -hmm. This is about Massachusetts. These are small-time hoods, small-time gangster guys. This is like the Irishman, the Irishman type of stuff happening on a much smaller budget. Older, aging guy you know, has to go out on the, on the thing, do a hit, make, do a robbery, lots of distrust. It's a really good film. But again, it's it's got a grimness that's foreboding. Like, you know going into it, this is not going to end well for anybody. And Mitchum is just excellent as world-weary. And uh, you think, like, wow, tough. 1973 film. Really good. The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Okay. Highly recommend that. We're going to go to your favorite now. <laughs> my favorite. Well, it is a good one. 1975, he does Farewell, My Lovely. And you thought Elliot Gould was a down-and-out Philip Marlowe in The Long Goodbye. Here, Noir Vero and Mitchum takes on the bogey role, but a much older, more washed-up one. He's past middle age and cognizant that his career has taken a serious dive into the dumps, fetching runaway daughters for 25 bucks and getting kicked in the balls for it, literally, but too proud to take tips from his disaffected rich clients. When he gets a job he can't refuse from Richard Jaws Keel lookalike Jack O'Halloran, probably best remembered as the big lunk mute from the Phantom Zone trio in Superman 2, he finds himself entangled in a game of smoke and mirrors, chasing after red herrings, getting set up for double murders and being gaslighted, drugged, and beaten up at every turn. Things heat up when he meets the smoky Charlotte Rampling, who's not only married to a rich old man, but turns out to be both a former hooker in the stable of, and also married to two further interested parties encountered along the way, which leaves her in a position where she'd risk a lot to bury her former identity. 
We talked this one briefly in our Stallone show. As he gets a wordless but memorable part, as the chauffeur comes stud to one scary Butch Madam's lipstick but swinging both ways bladey friend. His right-hand man, Joe Spinell, the maniac himself, also gets a bit part here, as does crusty old John Ireland, as a police detective keeps butting heads with Mitchum. And Sylvia Miles leaves a tragic impression as the washed-up former showgirl he pays a visit to twice. But the real stars of the show are Rampling and Mitchum, and to an extent, O'Halloran is the heavy. She doesn't get as much screen time as she deserves, but this film shows Rampling as the closest modern generation's ever got to the smokily sexual yet elegant femme fatales of film noir. Mitchum seems even more tired here than he did in the Yakuza, which gives this statement of closure on an earlier generation's cynicism extra heft. Alongside Long Goodbye, this is probably the definitive neo-noir. Uh, <laughs> that was an effective. Wow. <laughs> no, it's very good. It's very good film. I, I Charlotte Rampling, I, I, here's the thing, I, she's 75 now, God bless her, she's still around. I never really paid attention to Charlotte Rampling. Even when we did a whole I'm show sorry. on her? <laughs> Wait, I'm back checking. We did a whole show on her, but I'm saying... At the time, okay. at the time of the long goodbye, and then I, I saw Asylum, the Amicus film, right. then The Night Porter, and yep. then Zardos. Yep. And then once I saw Zardos, whatever kind of movie it was, I was very taken with her. Yep. We talked that in our Connery and show. We dealt with that in our Connery show and the Charlotte Rampling show. Yes. And she's one of the few women we've actually done an entire show on it because she's just so good. Yep. She's so talented. Barbara Steele, Bridget Bordeaux, her, I think there's one other. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few. We should do more. Sure. But yeah, Zardo's and then Farewell, My Lovely. And I was just like, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's just tremendous. She's so good. Even Sylvia Miles is fun. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who who just shines as long as it is. Hey, Johnny. Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> And Rainbow, Cheryl Smith is in this. Yes. Um, uh, Lamora and a bunch of other films. And uh, it's, it's just it's just quite good. It's like, I mean, I don't know how much, how true this is. Did you ever see this thing on Wiki where it said that the, uh, the producers originally wanted Burton? Richard I heard that, Burton. yeah. I was like, really? I couldn't picture that. And you know what? I Well, this is the time period Burton was doing those drunken ecstasy films. <laughs> what was that thing they were Lee Marvin and, and OJ? What was that? Thing? Yeah, I'm oh. not firepower, it was something else. No, oh. oh, it was the terrible uh the one where they were they were all drunk and they were in a southern town. Oh god, okay. Recovered <laughs> deliverance. Recovered <laughs> No, no, no. It was oh you're gonna make me look this up. Hold on folks, this is worth the trip. Sounds like a Joe Don yeah. Baker film. <laughs> No, it's, it's, we talked about this. Damn. I'm sure we did. Uh, uh, why can't I find a rich <sighs> That doesn't matter. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a great film anyway. But anyway, so, Farewell, My Lovely. Very good film. And um, where are we going after this? Well, actually, the sequel to that, which was 1978's The Big Sleep. A mere three years on from Farewell, My Lovely, and Sir Lou Grade, who had given us so many great ITV series, which we discussed in many a show, just like for anything related to British cult television, and the only pair of Muppet movies worth watching, he had tries to repeat his earlier success to much diminished result. The first time I saw this, the vast difference between the two productions left me slamming this one mercilessly, as you can hear in our last show on... Maybe it was just when we were talking about Farewell, My Lovely. I brought it up afterwards. But the vast difference between the two productions left me slamming this one mercilessly. And to be sure, some of the performances are pretty bad, notably Candy Clark's wacky teenager. And strangely, the only time you'll see Sarah Miles not looking haggard and aged. But she's still kind of creepy looking. Putting her crazy-eyed Roseanne Rosanna Dana hair itself in the Laura McCall role just doesn't work. Any more than drugged-out Candy Clark for the much sexier and knowing Martha Vickers one. 
She looks like one of those old Cupid dolls. She's that, that kind of face. Really, this one's directed by Michael Winner, who did a shitload of Charlie Bronson films, which we naturally discussed in both our Canon and Bronson shows. Plus a few fun oddities like the Nightcomers and Fire Power with O.J. Simpson when the gloves still fit. This one loses all the charm, mystery, and hothouse sex suffusing the Bogart version, which we talked about in our Bogart show, in favor of a very British goofy grottiness and reserve. They may amp up one character's gayness and show Clark's tits at the porno shoot term crime scene, held they even show her bush at one point, but this 1978 version feels far less modern and uninhibited than the original did in 1946. I mean, remember the bookstore scene with Bogart? Holy shit, that was hot stuff. Loaded with some pretty raw and open innuendo and suggestion. Here they cast Joan Collins in what you would imagine be a similar role. But nope, the admittedly stunning woman who was notorious for betting anybody and everybody in England and Hollywood and furtherance of her career never gets so much as a loaded line, never takes off a stitch of clothing, nothing. She was more over six on fucking Dynasty, and that's saying something. That said, if you're looking for that close-knit, oppressively grim feel that marks British film and some television productions of the 70s, there's certainly quite a bit of that. Plus, you get Oliver Reed as the pissed-off gangster whose house the aforesaid porno shoot and murders took place in. And Jimmy Stewart as the grumpy old general, whose daughters cause so much mayhem here. Even perennial thug and tink from Lovejoy, Dudley Sutton shows up for half a minute. It's not good, it's not recommended by any means, but yeah, I was probably too hard on it last time around when it came up. Dry and ineffective, and so much worse by comparison with either Grade and Mitchum's last Marlowe film, or Hawks and Bogart's classic 1946 version, but better than I gave it credit for. Well, one of the issues... With this picture, I have several actually. But one of the issues with this picture is that Farewell, My Lovely, which is only made three years earlier, uh, was a period piece. And and The Big Sleep is set in the 70s, yeah. which is like, okay, but we're going to take, we're going to keep Mitchum in that role, but we're going to set it instead of 1946. Let's just say I'm just dropping it out of my head in 1979, right? The dawn of 1980, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's so weird. We throw him right into depraved London with all these characters. Uh, it's an interesting cat. Edward Fox is in this thing. I always thought it was so weird because it's just Oliver Reed was still a name. Yes. And and he, they really didn't promote him much in this in this film. Well, he almost phoned it in. He doesn't really seem to be. He himself. almost. Yeah, yeah. Which may not be a bit. <laughs> uh, uh, if he phones it in, he's not going overtly. Maniacal. <laughs> um, right, we did an Oliver Reed show. Right? Yes, we did. And, and that's probably where this came up. And yeah, he, he's really not uh, on any of the promotion materials, on posters. Actually, you get if you get the DVD and Blu-ray, Oliver Reed's name is not even on there. Yep. It's like very strange what's going on with that. Maybe people don't even know he's in the film. <laughs> um, and and Metro looks decidedly... Tired. Uh, hmm? Tired. Yes, yes. Almost like you know, in the two, two, three years since uh, Farewell, My Lovely, he just more weary. Mm-hmm. Two pictures I wanted to briefly mention before we get to the uh, boxing kangaroo film <laughs> is uh, <laughs> the you know he was in the last tycoon was Elia Kazan, film. right? And uh, you know. What's oh, is that the one we talked about in a Tony Curtis show where Tony was yes, the is. supposedly Valentino? <laughs> right, right. With, with De Niro and, and Jean Moreau and Jack Nicholson, Donald Pleasance, Ray Milan, Dana Andrews. What a cast. It's way too long. Yes. It's, it, yeah. I think the original running time was like over two hours. I passed on it here entirely, but if you want to hear a bigger discussion on it from my end, probably from both our ends, check out our uh, Tony Curtis show. Tony Curtis show. Yeah, so there's the last tycoon, tycoon, 
an Amsterdam kill, which was, uh, you skipped that one. And that was a film uh, shot in Hong Kong, directed by Robert Klaus. Really? Enter the Dragon. Yeah, he does decent stuff. Yeah, and uh, so uh, Mitchum uh, is a DEA agent. You know, he gets to walk around slowly. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, it's funny. Because Klaus has done some decent stuff. It's a Golden Harvest Columbia co-production, 1978. It's a year before uh, the picture we just discussed. Mm-hmm. The um, Big Sleep. <sighs> Big Sleep, thank you. And it's got a cast of supporting actors from way past their bedtime. <laughs> Richard Egan, Leslie Nielsen, who will have a career resurgence about 20 years later. Bradford Gilman. I mean, this is how bad it is. <laughs> Key Luke. Wow. You know, uh, yeah, but since it was partly shot in Hong Kong, we also have Yun Bao mm-hmm. and Yun Hua. Wow. So, and Lam Ching Ying, everybody knows those great Jackie Chan films and other stuff, Drunken Master too. Yep. He's also in this. So it's just like almost uh, uh, when Hammer did the... Oh, the Seven Golden Stoner. Vampires. And, yeah. yeah, Vampires and did Stoner with uh, Stuart, Stuart Whitman. Whitman. Yeah. They brought Mitchum in. Well, this is not a Hammer film, but you know, this is still a couple of years after Bruce Lee died. Hong Kong uh, Kung Fu movies are still big, so you know they bring they bring an American actor over there and they make it a police thriller. But of course, we got to throw some very popular Chinese actors into the mix too. But anybody want a trip to Hong Kong? You know, all right, how about <laughs> these age, aging actors? <laughs> so you know, Leslie Nielsen was always good as playing a dick. So was. So was Bradford Dillon, so it's kind of odd, an oddity, but uh, if you could see the Amsterdam kill. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is actually the closure for me, but yeah, you definitely, he did some other stuff. You mentioned Matilda, you probably want to talk about that. No, I was just joking. Matilda, Matilda, uh, Elliot Gould, who we love, we did Elliot Gould show, yeah. folks. Uh, we, we actually quite like Elliot. He did some bizarre career choices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was a small town, uh, small town talent agent uh, who was uh, dealing with the boxing kangaroo <laughs> who was defeating human boxing. Do you think it was an allegory yes. for his marriage to Barbara Streisand? I know you said that last time. <laughs> <laughs> it was like two years ago. I said the same thing. Yeah, but, but Mitchum is in a big cast of oddball people. Lionel Stander is in this. Harry Guardino, everybody remembers Harry. Clive Revel. It was just a very strange movie at a very strange time. I think it was a uh, American British co-production, mm-hmm. and uh, it was sold to AIP because nobody wanted it. <laughs> Another oddity was uh, the agency, which is getting a lot of talk about. I think it was given Rebirth on Blu-ray. It's one of these strange movies with Lee Majors. Okay. Uh, Valerie Perrine is Canadian film. And uh, Mitchum is actually quite good in this. It's 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 sort of like a low budget Canadian picture. He's using subliminal advertising, pre they live with John Carpenter, mm-hmm. to manipulate Senate senatorial elections. He's a TV guy. He owns big corporations, and uh, it's not bad. It's not half bad. The agency. I I recommend checking that out. So he did a couple of TV things, like I mentioned, The Winds of War in North and South, which were, you know, basically, uh, obviously, Civil War and God knows what else. And they were popular at the time. I don't think I might care about them much nowadays. He went up on the episode The Equalizer, a two-parter. He did that horrible Scrooge with uh, Bill Murray. 
And then I figure you want to talk about Cape Fear and or Tombstone, and that's pretty much it for him. So uh, go ahead and let her rip. Well, uh, well, Cape, Cape Fear, you know, it's a small part in that. He played the police lieutenant. I, I already I already mentioned that uh, De Niro played the Metropolitan Note. He plays the Gregory Peck role. Jessica Lange is in this. Uh, I thought I thought Robert De Niro's Max Cady did a, a, a fine job. Uh, you know, I think they they bought Mitchum, Peck, Martin Balsam, who were in the original picture, back to just sweeten the little you know connection yeah. there. Nice tribute. Now, Tombstone, one of the great. Revered modern westerns by a lot of people. Although it's a picture I probably have to take a look at again. It has a great cast, and I did see this several times a long time ago because it was HBO perennial. You remember those days? Mm-hmm. What's on today? Rambo, Beastmaster, this park is mine. Tombstone. <laughs> yeah. But he, he's pretty much a narrator in this spot, which, and uh, oh my god, I know somebody worked on this. <laughs> but yeah, Kurt Russell. Val Kilmer, Michael Bean, Powers Booth, Sam Elliott, Bill Paxton. I mean, Billy Zane, that fuck. And it's just <laughs> lots of people. Um, a lot of people like Tombstone. I, again, I would have to take, I, w- I would want to take another look at it before making, you know, a positive or negative comment. Right. But I think we covered some high points in his career. Yeah, definitely. Long career. Yeah, we definitely didn't cover everything. We just kind of hit the high points, most of which were film noirs or neo-noir. That's where he spent most of his uh, acting time, and for good reason, probably. Uh, he definitely fits the role. 90, he died in 1997. Yes. And I couldn't tell you how old he was at the time. But... Oh, 1917. So, wow, he was 90 years old. Yeah, yeah. Great, great career, and uh, more than a character actor. He was, he was a man that was tough, and yet didn't, you know, he, he kind of... He did the walk, you know? Walk the walk and talk and talk. He's one of those guys like Clark Gable, or to some extent Bogart as well, where he was of the old school before this method stuff. You know, he didn't get into character and, oh, I'm going to go insane because I'm going to become my character and all this horse shit that they love to throw out and they do too many drugs. He's basically just come in, hit your marks, say your lines, don't fuck up, leave. That's it. In those days, at least, they used to cast you as a character type. You know, they saw your personality, they saw your look. They either assigned you something that was similar to the way you were, or they decided you would be good as this, and that was it. You know, it was kind of the, the studio machine. That's where you were. And I think, for the most part, when you look at these people's lives, a lot of them were basically based on who they were as people or what they put off as in their persona. And he was definitely one of those. You know, he was just kind of a little laid back, you know, a little tough, a little, you know... Smoke a little weed. He's kind of, he's like a sleepy, like, okay. Gets in trouble with the law. Brought around the USA, basically. Knew his way around. Getting through life on the hard edge. And that probably brought, hey, look, perfect for film noir. Because, you know, the guy's seen the, the worst of men and uh, lived a rough life. You know, I'm sure later on, as he got through his career, things mellowed out. At least after he got out of jail. Because that happened to him. Oh, we did skip one major film that they thought he was going to be nominated for Best Actor. Which one was that? We did skip. Brian's Daughter. David Lean film. Yeah. And, uh, he played uh, Charles Shaughnessy, complete with a brogue. And actually, it's a pretty good brogue. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's an epic romantic film starring Mitchum and Sarah, Sarah Miles. Uh, but a woman has an affair with a British officer during World War One, and, and it's pretty terrific. He looks great in it. And, and for 1970, it's, he just looks terrific. And, and it's a good cast. It's a heavy, it's almost like a, a BBC 
miniseries wrapped up into a 200-minute film. I think one of the problems was it's written by Robert Bolton. Didn't Robert Bolton work on Night Claudius? Yeah, I believe he did. Yeah, so it's got it's got good uh, good stuff there. And uh, I forgot. Well, neither one of us mentioned it because it's just you know when you when you're doing kind of research for this kind of stuff, and I just came across this. Oops, we have to mention Ryan's daughter, otherwise people will say, "Hey, you didn't mention Ryan's daughter." Well, they kind of know that melodramas and weepies and stuff are not my forte, so. <laughs> I think they'll forgive no, it. No, <laughs> I'd say we, because because there there was great talk of him being nominated and it didn't happen. Right. I, I did want to mention that film. Okay, yeah. that's it. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Robert Mitchum. Next time we will be back with somebody new. <laughs> We haven't figured that out yet. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and of course, we're on Podbean, thirdicinema.podbean.com. We are available on iTunes. Look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Ticker of the ID is 5534-02044. We're also on Spotify and Amazon.com Podcasts. Again, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, uh, anything else you want to get off your chest, or uh, do we call it a night? <laughs> uh, we're going to call it a night, and we hope to not be gone for as long as we were this time and uh you stay safe out there we'll see you soon all right sounds good good job all right all right take care wondering what it was <laughs> i heard you typing away I heard, you know all this stuff and then when you called back the mouse got deactivated for some reason i was like what the hell is going on here <laughs> yeah the um the uh, headphones are plugged directly into the blue yeti rather than going through my complicated uh, system here but 
have one of these pre-Sonus audio boxes that I use for podcast, right. where I, I can mix my voice and blah, blah, blah. And so I don't use, normally use headphones for that, although I probably should. It'd probably be a little clearer and you would get, I would not get direct noise. But for this, since we're, we're you know, we're not doing a visual thing, um, although you could wear a mask one day, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you would know, right? It'd be fun. Like, hey, look, it's two guys. So I, I plug this directly into the Blue Yeti, uh, which is nice. I can hear myself nice and clear. It sounds good. Except I forgot to turn up the volume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I worry about when I have to, uh, you know, this desktop I've had for a couple of years. You know, they're only good for like four or five. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm thinking like, well, it's funny. You remember back in the day, they cost a grand, you right. know? And now they're like three, four hundred dollars, which is you know, it's still not great, but it's doable. It's a lot better, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot better. And um, I just worry about all the shit I have on this one. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I guess. The programs you got and everything. You, know, you got to get them all over again? No. <laughs> Some of you can't even do anymore. Yeah. Especially yeah. the freeware stuff, because... All of a sudden, they put in new versions, and oh, don't get this one because it's a Trojan horse. You know, somebody screwed up with it. Like, really? They took away functionality. When I got this, it was Microsoft whatever version. Mm-hmm. And now they use Edge. And I was trying to do some editing, uh, and somebody said, oh, don't you have Movie Maker? And I said, oh, my God, I used to use Movie Maker when I used to make sex videos. <laughs> and don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, with the missus. It's right. Not this missus. <laughs> all the missus. An ex, an ex. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, I, you know, I had to look around. We used Movie Maker in years and years. And so they had it. But I'm like, this is so archaic. Right. And it turned out they stopped supporting it. So they got it, but they haven't updated it in so many years. So it's, it's fucking useless. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I wanted to ask you, so you've been doing, so you've done interviews with, with a couple of these musicians. Over oh, the a lot of them, yeah. Uh, so uh, they've been audio only? Uh, yes, I never did video, even though I had two people that I did video with privately, one of which was a lovely Sonia Sakari, sorry, uh, Sonia Scarlet from Theatre del Vampire from Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh-huh. came dressed to the nines, you know, the full regalia, like, you know, vampire or whatever the hell she was doing. And I was like, wow, that was a treat. <laughs> Seeing that at like 10 o'clock in the morning, like, oh, okay. Uh, you know, nobody can see this, right? <laughs> but I'd like to talk to some of these people uh, I've been speaking about past year. <laughs> right. And uh, I, I, used to, I, I assume a lot of them are amendable to, you know, 20 minutes or, you know, we'll see how long it goes, how well it goes. And I'm like, how do I do this? And uh, so if you do video, does it split the screen? There's a, there's a good question. It, it's the meeting I was going to have with these people. Oh, okay. So I'm like, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was one of those like virus things. Like, uh, here we go. No, no. So I, I, you're always sitting in the dark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. So what's going on? Uh, well, it depends what you're talking about. Life. In terms of, uh, you know, just <laughs> life in the world and everything. Holy shit, resurgent COVID, huh? Owning the libs from the ICU. <laughs> uh, well, you know, 
So what do I got coming up? I got a show on my birthday at Sony Hall. Mm -hmm. It used to be the Lowe's Astor Plaza. Then it became something else. Uh, that's what's called now. It used to be the Best Buy Theater. Remember that in Broadway? Mm -hmm. And then I got really December Phil Collins at Madison Square Garden. You know, right now. I thought he was all messed up. He can't even drum and everything. And he can't drum, and he sits down in the chair. And I really, nobody I know wanted to go. My, you know, good friends. And I, I, I sometimes jab Genesis, but I do enjoy their music. And I said, let me take a look. And it was pricey. I said, oh, what the fuck? Okay, I'll pay it off. But now with this, I don't know. Yeah. So then the stones come out of nowhere. I, I, I. When, when did I, I saw the small club show at Mary Fell from the October Project. Okay. It was very good, actually. I had no idea the October Project. I didn't follow them. And I had no idea there was such a goth thing, mm -hmm. like two or three albums. So I watched the videos when I came home from back in the day, and I was like, oh, that's who that was. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was a small show. So, the, you know, the Stones announced this fucking tour with, you know, it was 15 shows, and I'm like, Maybe PA, maybe it's about the only one that's close. It's possible. And um, there I'm like, oh, I found a bunch of tickets for like 60 bucks. With Ticketmaster fees now being what they are, they're 80. Wow. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I bought a Rick Wakeman ticket from Montclair. It was, uh, what was it, uh, $59. It was 82 with taxes and fees. It's Montclair. <laughs> Crazy. So, anyway, uh, Okay, I could take Amtrak for X amount of money round trip, and I could probably find a place in walking distance of the Heinz Stadium. Right. Catch up. <laughs> and. What a asshole bought it this week. Yeah, right. And 68,000 people. So even if they have the huge ass stage and they knock out 10,000 seats, it's still 60,000 people, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, I don't know, it's too big, too soon, and who knows what. Things change from day by day around here. So, you know, yeah. like, well, that tour even supposed to start too, soon, too. It's in exactly two months, October 4th. So I'm sitting this one out, believe it or not. It's also not New Jersey. You know, it's not New York. And if things straighten themselves out. Oh, so speaking of which, so I got an email from Madison Square Garden today. Mm -hmm. And... Would you like, we know you're going to the show because we have concerns about COVID. Would you fill out the survey? Okay. How would you feel about going to show with unvaccinated people? Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, you know. Like, well, I wouldn't feel comfortable. That was an option. You know, next question was, are you vaccinated? Yes, I am. How would you feel about sitting next to So it looks like they're leaning up to making an announcement. Yeah, they already sold tickets, mind you. Mm -hmm. And I think both these shows might be sold out. 7th and 8th December? Something like that. I think they might be making an announcement. Like, regardless, you bought a ticket, you better have your vaccine card. Mm -hmm. uh, which is going to piss people off, you know, those people. Yeah. <laughs> I got so much going on in my life. I don't want to bore the hell out of you. It could be a whole show. <laughs> uh, so I, I've been getting calls on my cell phone because there's a lot going on with my mom. And I'm trying to fucking ignore them. I just can't deal. So I'm, like, getting New Jersey calls. And I'm like, and it was a voicemail left... Uh, Two days ago, which on my Apple I could read, and uh, said this New Jersey vaccination is, uh, must be a fucking scam. 
So I called today and I, I turned off my ringer because uh, I have a camera set up for downstairs and I have new people that are moving in this week. Right. Uh, so, okay, so far the Spanish, they have like a hundred fucking friends and family. I mean, there's only two people living there, I think. Mm-hmm. But like, there's so many people there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know them. You know, they got, this is my uncle, my sister, my brother, my cousin. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not fucking kidding. It's like, Oh, hi, and I confused the lady who was sweeping the hall yesterday with the lady who was moving in. Mm. Oh, no, it's my aunt. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, my camera's going off like bling, bling, and it's got a notification. I can't figure out how to shut it off on my phone, so I just shut my phone off. So I saw I got called from New Jersey, vaccination again. So I called them. Right. Yeah, now we're up. I'm like, hi. Like, I got through all the problems. to set up a vaccination. I'm like, no, they called me. Stay on the line. If you want English or Spanish or another language, press. I'm like, stay on the line, stay on the line. So I got some way. I'm like, you guys called me. You've been calling me, apparently. Yes, we don't have a record of your second vaccination. I'm like, how do you know that? <laughs> so I told them where it was. Why? They may not, because it was at a CVS. Okay. I said, the first time I had it done was in Jersey City. They gave me a schedule. I went, I called them because they didn't call me. And they said they didn't have anything for weeks. I said, that's way past the date I'm supposed to have the second shot. So you remember this. Yeah, sure. I panicked and I'm like, what the fuck? You know, don't tell me I wasted that vaccine. No. So I went to the, you helped me. Yeah. With the CVS, remember? Sure. Yeah. So I went to Edgewater and I got it done. Boom, boom. And they wrote it down in my card. And I'm like, here we go. Four months later, like, we don't have a record of your second. So I said, by the way, <laughs> I stupidly, it's my fault. Yeah, I've been bringing the car uh, some places, you know, like a restaurant when I went to that club, City Winery. Right. And, yeah, it's getting a little funky. Okay. So I ordered a self-laminating sheet. Don't do that. First of all, it's so sticky. I put it on there, but I got air bubbles, and the back of it looks like shit. Oh, jeez. So I said, to, I said to the lady, I said, can I get a replacement card? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I said, look, first of all, it's a big 3 by 5 mini index card. <laughs> and it's hard to carry it with you, and I get that. But there's an app. I don't know about no app. I know there's a New York app. I didn't know there's a New Jersey app. And what am I putting on the app? You don't even have the information for the second dose until I just gave it to you. Yeah, sure. So I said, can you send me a new card? Which I assume is going to be blank. I'll just write it in myself, right? Yeah. And I'll I'll put it in one of those plastic luggage things, you know. I'll see if they send it to me. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, that was the latest bit of, come on. <laughs> And you know, in a week, in a week of come ons. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's been a lot of that stuff. And I saw the, uh, it was kind of amusing, seeing two of my favorite people, are, uh, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene, out on tour together. <laughs> Have you seen that? And they're kind of getting booed and chased out of where they go. <laughs> yeah, they even shot up one city that canceled their tour. Right? Well, hopefully you can hear this because I actually got some of the uh, campaign they're doing to the voters. White men. The black as muscle, 
against you, you. and you are left there helpless. that movie the other day uh, and you know that was like 19 friggin 80 and nothing has changed in all these years except that back then everybody hated fascists <laughs> what movie is that that's the blues brothers i hate oh. all their nazis <laughs> nothing has changed but yeah i mean other than that it's been a lot of i was watching i claudius again and i went to i got to like the quietness of that so i saw tinker taylor soldier spy and i watched that for the first time since God knows when it was on, probably. And I was like, oh, this is nice. And with it was Smiley's People, which was, I thought, even better. But, you know, different feels on both of them. Is that uh, Alec Guinness? Alec Guinness, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's where absolutely nothing happens, really. It's all kind of just through the chat and below the surface. It's the Icarus file without any of the action scenes. <laughs> it's that kind of spot. Yeah, 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 I saw those years ago. Yeah, so it was enjoyable for what that was. Wasn't there uh, an updated one with Gary Oldman that was pretty much in that style? Uh, there was, yeah. I forget what year that one was. That was also a very quiet film. Uh, yeah. And, you know, uh, we've been watching Starsky and Hutch. We're, I think we just killed off season three. <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned I was watching this. We were flipping around. We got some uh, channels through the antenna. We actually bought a new antenna recently because the channels that were coming in for free through the TV vanished. And it might have been, from what we read, it might have been from those storms we had recently. So there's absolutely nothing all of a sudden. And we got used to having, yeah, there's nothing much. A couple of PBS channels, the three majors, a couple of local ones, you know, like the Game Show Network, that buzzer thing. And all of a sudden, it's all gone. I'm like, and we got down to one day was we had three channels left or something like that, you know, that we cared about. The next day was one. All we have is channel four. <laughs> I'm like, this is going to be strange. And you know, we're kind of used to seeing certain things after we watch a lot of this shit. But she's like, you know what? Let's see if there's uh, what these cable packages want. I was like, Cause, you know, if it's like, I don't know. I knew it wasn't going to be, let's say it's like 10 bucks a month to get back what we had or something like even 15. All right. So, you know, it might be doable because we got used to this. No, they want you putting these packages with 50 and 60 and 80 bucks and you're missing half the channels we even had for free. I'm like, what the fuck? So she's like, you know what? Let's try one of these antennas. And I was like, nah. We did the antenna thing years ago when the digital TV first came out. And, oh, yeah, this will help you get all these channels. It got jack shit. And it was just fuzz around. Uh, I remember that. So I remember that. I did that, too. They have this new thing, this multi-directional amplified antennas. And if you go and get one, you can check your area for what you're supposed to get. You know, the government actually puts out what you should get. And, God damn it, we got every one of those channels, really. Some of them you have to fiddle with it to get, but... 95% of them, it's not only do we have them, just you don't have to touch anything. It's not like you have to move the antenna around once you got it set. It's not like the old ones you had on TVs where you're like, oh, let's change the rabbit ears or whatever the hell. You just put it in a space in your window or whatever the hell and you're done. Uh, but the damn things look better than they did through the TV, which might have been coming through cable somehow. I don't know. So I'm pretty impressed with that. What, what about a fire stick? We actually got a fire stick. Uh, that was before that. And the only thing it gave us besides, you know, Amazon, whatever, was a couple of month freebie on Disney. So we've been watching that stuff, like I mentioned, like the hell was it, the Winter Soldier thing, which was okay. WandaVision, which was great. I love that one. 
Trash Lucky? Not yet, because we were waiting for it to get a little bit more finished. It, at the time, it was only like two episodes out, but we're going to. We saw the first season of The Runaways, which is okay. You know, typical tween drama, like a CW kind of thing. And the Mike Tyson mysteries, which I didn't know existed. That was hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I, I don't know how this guy is on this thing where he gives the voice and executive producer something that's basically about how dumb he is. <laughs> Doing like a Scooby-Doo sort of thing. But not even because it's totally absurd. It's the, the plots end up going nowhere and shoot off at the right field somewhere. When we were flipping around through these channels, the point I was getting back, you know, way back, we ran through, I don't know, Cozy or one else. I think that was the ones that played the old detective shows like we watch or whatever. And sometimes it's like, oh, let me see about that. You know, that's why I ran across the invaders. When I was flipping around there, there was this ridiculous show with Shatner around. What the hell is this? And he's like a disguise artist or whatever. And it's some shitty, like, Wild West show. And it's because I'm called Barbary Coast. I wish I knew about it when we did the Shatner show, but it's so stupid. And of course, it's out of print. It's going for stupid money. I'm like, get out of here. I just wanted to see this thing. So luckily, the libraries have one copy of it, so I've been watching that. It's pretty bad, but it's still funny. You know, remember uh, Doug McClure, the guy with the giant chin? Uh, yeah, I like Doug. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he's like running a, a casino in like the Wild West. He's like a gambler, sharpster type. And I don't know why he's hooked up with him. But Shatner's there as like a government agent who's kind of like the shadow. He puts on all this bad makeup and you're not supposed to know it's him. Uh, but you can always tell it's really bad makeup. He's barely in the damn show, really. He kind of pops in the beginning, the middle, of the end, just so you know he's there. But he seems to be having a good time, at least. That's basically it. I mean, other than music, I see what you've been listening to. <laughs> yeah, because I, uh, okay, it's running on to... Five weeks now, and I have to go back to work in the office. Oof. So far. But it looks like it's going to happen because, you know, got to go back. Because of the economy. You know, they got to get the workers back. There's an ad on TV that I love where it's like, well, we've seen the way forward. We've seen what the future is. Why would you want to go backwards? And it's like like sling or something like that where you can just do your work remotely. And it's it's exactly right. There's no reason for this. No, they want the people in the offices. They, They do. And uh, we're given a split, and then I was told by my manager, I need you there. Mm. Like, okay. <laughs> right, first of all, I, I went into Manhattan twice in the last two years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, one time I was in a car. So I went to Manhattan once, really. You know, and uh, we're talking about sitting at a fucking desk. Eight hours. Yep. We're talking travel back and forth for an hour, hour plus, coming home like two hours maybe because it's always been that way. Yep. We're, we're just talking about being exhausted day one and going forward for a week. You know, it's just like it's going to be totally different. You know, it's yep. they don't get this. Nope. So it, it changed. And as of last week, when they sent out an additional email, it was changed to you got to be vaccinated. The law firm has decided you got to be vaccinated. If you can, you got a problem. Contact us now. And a buddy of mine who retired because he had some health issues, unrelated to COVID, believe it or not, told me uh, this this girl we know, this lady, was like, I'm not going to get paid. No, Amanda said she's not going to get vaccinated. She's one of these fucking, fucking big girl, BBW type. <laughs> fucking. She'll knock you on your ass. She's like one of those tough girls. Right. And she's like, yeah, Amanda says she's not. I said, she ain't coming back to work. No, no. Then last week, they, they released this new thing. Like, if you're not back, you're not coming in. Yeah. So I even talked to my buddy um, to find out, like, what is she going to do? You know? 
Time to look for a new job. We can do remote. <laughs> well, that's the thing. They want people in the office. Because they're, they're old and they don't trust anybody to do the fucking work, even though it's very obvious you're online, you're talking to them, and you're plugging in whatever the hell. We've been doing it for almost two years. Yeah, exactly. But Well, no, they're paying, they're paying this money. You know, they're paying the rent <laughs> for these places, et cetera, et cetera. They've got to have something to do with it, too. Now, remember, they got 10 floors of Hudson Yards, which they just opened. Uh, less than a year before the pandemic closed everything down, they got two floors at Whitehall. Mm-hmm. Now we were there a little longer, but that's a lot of rent to put up too. But the thing is, I don't see clients coming into these buildings. Yeah. It's, it's like, come on, you know. It's anyway. You're just stuck in old times, and it's time for everybody to move on. Yeah, so I got to go back, and I'm trying to get my. Uh, my stamina back up. I, I got le- uh, some less pains. I, I take the leave. It helps. Right. And you were pretty straight on in your... Uh, oh, with the NSAID and the, the stretches? Yeah. Yeah. The, what did you call it? I wrote it down. Oh, trochanteric bursitis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it is. Oh, there it is. That's my piece of paper. It's a nasty thing. Like I said, it brought me to my knees when I was still working. I couldn't figure it out. I was like, God, I'm like, <laughs> I didn't think I was going to make it to my car. I'm like, like practically crawling back to my car. Holy shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was me that one day. And then that was actually another reason that I was so against all this crap because, you know, going back to work with that place anyway before it even dumped me is because yeah. I got to, because of that, I started working from home for a lot. I was out for months. I mean, probably five, six months just trying to get back to where I could walk around normally. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's bad stuff. Yeah, and the front, it went away. Yes. And then it st- started in the back right side. Yep. And I was like, move? <laughs> I made it. And uh, so if I'd taken a leave for one day, two days, I'm like, I'm better. Yeah. And then I stopped taking it. And then, like, the next day or two days later, it's like, ah, oh, shit. But you got to keep doing the stretches. That's the problem because you just tighten yeah. back up and – you know, the, the muscles shorten. It's like um, they actually have a thing out there saying, oh, if you can't bend over and touch your toes, it's like an indicator that you're about to get it for a heart attack. It might be just because your gut's too big and you're lazy. But regardless, there's something about your flexors or something in your legs that will tell them this. And it's it's really important to keep them uh, stretched out because they keep tightening up. And then once they do, you're headed for an injury, whether you like it or not. Well, it's why I'm trying to walk. You know, like, my wife's just, do exercises. Like, fuck you, I can't do <laughs> I actually bought one of these things on Amazon, lumbar support, right. the chair, because, you know, yeah. I'm sitting here all the time. Man, it made it worse. I said, nope, taking that off after two hours. <laughs> yeah, I've experienced some of those things, too. Uh, the reviews are good, but, you know, it, it might help somebody, but just not me. One of my chiropractors right. said, just keep walking. No matter what you do, keep walking and keep stretching. Uh-huh. And that really does work. You know, ace it sometimes. Sometimes heat helps, but that's the most important thing. Keep it moving. Keep it stretching. Yeah. So, uh, all right, after all that, <laughs> check this out. Assume it's okay. And then we'll get yeah. rolling with uh, Mr. Mitchum. Okay. I need to do a refill anyway. So while you test this out, I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. Every Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, 
an open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. (laughs) 